Welcome to the jungle. We got fun and games. Oh, and yes, we do. You, my friend, are listening to part two. Welcome to the jungle, my ayahuasca journey at Rhythmia. Make sure, of course, to go back and listen to part one if you're just tuning into this one, because you will need the context. This is a narration, a field report of a week-long journey I took from Los Angeles to Costa Rica to the depths of my soul and back. What you're going to hear in part two are two more interviews. You're also going to hear reports on my third and fourth ceremony. And then this episode will conclude with the details of an accident that took place on my last day, followed by perhaps the most profound realization of this whole experience for me. And that was discovering the initial trauma that took place the moment I was born. At this point, I'd like to invite you to sit back, relax, open your heart and open your mind as we dive into the rest of this journey with an interview featuring Christian Minson on how breathwork can coincide with plant medicines, and then an interview with Dr. Jeff McNary, who's a psychiatrist that's worked in recovery for 25 years. He's going to talk about the science of this medicine. So this is going to bring you through the end of the journey along with two fantastic interviews right in the middle. Enjoy the show. Let's take a moment to bring you up to speed in this story. So this interview with Christian Minson took place very early in the morning after the night of my second ceremony. So this would be the third day. And later this day, after the interview with Christian and then Jeff McNary, was my third ceremony. So I've just had my mind blown, my heart completely blown open, and I'm here trying to set up my audio equipment, my video equipment. And to be honest, at times it was a little tough to sort of work, if you could call what I do work, because it's so fun. I don't really consider it work, but there are technical things that you have to go through. And uh, we recorded this out by the pool. There's also a video of this on uh, YouTube, by the way, like many of the other interviews I do. And so I'm scrambling around. It's 9, 9.30 in the morning or something ridiculous like that, as I recall, and uh, just trying to get my head together and prep for the the conversation here with Christian. And we ended up having a really lighthearted, fun time. He has a fascinating story. And so I'm really glad I was able to include what he does here because breathwork has been a huge portal into my own awakening. I've been doing various forms of breathwork, as you'll hear in this conversation for many years. And uh, what transpired later in the journey, which you'll hear about um, later in this episode, was actually doing some breath work after all the ayahuasca ceremonies had ended. So at this stage of the game, we're going to go ahead and jump into this conversation, and then you'll get some more field reports after that, and we'll jump right into the um, next interview with Dr. Jeff McNary, where we really get into the science of plant medicines. So what we talk about with Christian, who, by the way, is the resident director of the Breathwork Program at Rhythmia, and how he spent 10 years as a monk meditating and serving in search of a deeper meaning in life. He now helps others achieve greater spiritual and emotional intelligence by integrating trauma, releasing limiting habits, managing emotions, and teaching others to find meaning in their own lives and work. And that definitely happened in this interview. Here's what we talk about what breathwork is and how it can help you in ways that yoga can't, why Christian became a monk in the first place, 
and what made him transition back into being a worldly person. How the healers at Rhythmia help visitors find the light warrior essence within themselves. What separates transformational breathwork from the hundreds of other breathwork practices out there? Rebirthing through breath. The benefits of integrating a natural habitat into your spiritual experiences. And finally, how breathwork works with plant medicine to evolve your experience and help you claim it as your own. So sit back, my friends, and enjoy this conversation with Christian Minson. Welcome to the Lifestylist Podcast, Christian. Thank you, Luke. Great great to be here. Yeah, dude. It's good to kind of sit down with you again. We had a little formal or informal introduction the other morning and I always like to get to know a guest a bit before we record. Sometimes it's strange just coming in cold. It's also strange to go to sleep at 4 a.m. Uh, on ayahuasca and wake up at 8 a.m. to do an interview. So I'm just, you might have to carry me on this one, bro. <laughs> you just talk and I'll listen. Um, but I think I'd like to start with, you know, I want to talk about breathwork specifically because I've not really done a show on that, but also how that ties into consciousness and, you know, personal development and growth and spirituality. Right. But first, I'd just like to hear how you first, you know, began your journey of self-discovery and evolution. Wow. Well, that uh, you want the long story or the short, short one? Sorry, the yeah, short give me story. the truncated yeah. one because then I want to really go dive a little bit deeper into what's right. going on currently. Well, the, the short story is I, through high school and college, was on a, a, a self-discovery mission, a, spirit, a spiritual quest. And uh, that uh, got me on a spiritual path, which I ended up becoming a monk for 10 years of my life. And What type uh, of monk? Uh, a yogic monk, a oh, monk okay. in a yogic order, the uh-huh. Swami order of India. Got um, it, okay. Though I was a monk in Los Angeles and uh, that's where our ashram was. And uh, so I did that for 10 years of my life. And as I was, uh, it, as it came upon that 10 year mark and I was having these thoughts to, that I needed to leave, which was a little disconcerting because I had dedicated my life to this and wasn't sure what this feeling was of, of leaving this thing that, you know, that I'd committed to, uh, I discovered breath work, uh, transformational breath work, which really helped me to, to get in touch with, um, in my deeper motivations. It helped me in ways that meditation didn't even help me. In essence, it helped me to get in touch with my feelings. One, that I had feelings. Two, that my feelings were that they could express. And then three, that uh, finally to, to integrate those feelings. So I basically, long story short, made the, made the transition into becoming um, a worldly person again. And I got into the field of breath work as my practice. Uh, now I've been doing that for the last 12 years, which landed me at Rhythmia here uh, a year and a few months ago. That's really interesting that you started it 12 years ago. Now, I want to get into a little bit of the history of the different you know, modalities of breath work. But other than in Kundalini Yoga, as I was telling you, which they don't even call it breath work. It's just part of you know, the various Kriyas you have. Some of them involve strange ways of breathing and moving and sound and vibration and all that. But in the formal sense of breath work, I think it was like a couple of years ago that I found out about that you know, with the Wim Hof and then holotropic breath work and stuff. So um, you're what we call an early adopter. <laughs> I found breathwork personally to be extremely transformative. And as I was telling you the other day, 
I've not been intoxicated in a really long time. And I've had experiences doing breath work, especially the longer form, not not so much like the short little Wim Hof sessions and stuff, but um, in some of the, the longer ones where you go for 12 minutes, 20 minutes. I mean, I've had complete healing meltdowns where I'm crying, laughing, seeing colors, you know, having sort of a, a sober DMT moments, you know? Yeah. And uh, so I'm just a huge fan. I'm excited to learn more about it. So when you uh, came out of the period of being a monk in the ashram and uh, and then discovered breath work and kind of went back, as you said, out into the, to the secular world, so to speak, what type of breath work did you first start working with? And is that the same method that you use now? It, uh, yeah, I, I discovered the method of transformational breath. Uh, my teacher was Judith Kravitz, um, who, who founded that work over 30 years ago. And, um, she, uh, she, she created this work. I, I discovered it. And then I, because it had helped me so much, you know, it's that healer, healer helps, you know, what the, the person who is healed becomes the healer and, and uses the techniques that help them the most. And that was kind of my story. It, it had made such a profound impact in my experience that I said, I, gotta, I have to share this with people. And it was very much in line with my lifestyle as a monk because it, it, you know, it wasn't something that we ingested. It wasn't something external that we brought into us. But you know, as a monk, the main technique was meditation, which interestingly enough was our meditations were these focus on our breathing to manipulating our breathing in a way to send energy up and down the spine to let go of body consciousness and attain higher states of awareness. So when the breath work was, was kind of like a, a, a way to bring that to the world without having the religious overlay on it. So uh, um, I could reach a much wider audience, people, people who would be a little put off by meditation or by, you know, religion, so to speak, would, would could understand breath and that, that breath could, you know, uh, enhance your life and they'd be much more willing to try it. And then they get surprised, kind of like you were intimating of how much, how much profound uh, experience can happen just through a breathing process. Yeah, it's, it's actually crazy, you know, and of course, Anytime I sort of report on a different topic uh, on the show, I'm always encouraging people to give it a shot. And what's really cool is people do. I am guarantee you, many, many people will hear this and be like, hmm, what's this breathwork thing? And they'll Google their local you know, yoga center or something like that and probably be able to find it. It's becoming more widespread. So uh-huh. uh, that concept also I want to just touch on where you talked about you know, the healer healing thyself and then healing others. It's really funny that you said that because yesterday uh, before ceremony, I had, I was kind of doing a little uh, face, you know, social media report on my experience so far. And something became, uh, I became aware of something. I sort of unpacked this idea of being a healer. There was a couple of months ago, I was in uh, Tony Robbins' um, date with destiny in Florida, which was Mm. an amazing experience, but super intense, like so much different than this, you know, but in terms of a psychological restructuring is very useful because I really found out what my, my true purpose is, which is a huge gift, you know, uh-huh. definitely worth the however many days I spent there. But um, I forget my exact mission statement at the moment, but it was like, I'm a healer. And when that came to me, it came to me sort of, I don't know, from God or my subconscious. And I was like, I just bristled at that because uh-huh. 
I, I just got these visions of like, oh, you know, everyone's a fucking healer in LA. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, what does that mean? I do massage or like, what? I'm a healer. I just think, like, what does that mean? But it just, it's stuck. And yesterday I had the realization, exactly what you just said, that for so many years I've been healing myself, you know, using these different modalities mm. and spirituality and health and all kinds of stuff. And, um, and then I thought, well, how does that apply make me the healer? And it was exactly what you said. It's that, I'm healing myself and then demonstrating for people what I'm doing, what works, what doesn't, and um, what I'm finding to be restorative uh, and helpful. And then other people can take that information if they want and go apply it to their own life and heal themselves. So I was so grateful to be able to have that realization nice. and get a little more comfortable with what that means to me. And you know, that's really what is happening here at Rhythmia too. We use a little bit different language like we're... Um, we're helping people to discover their, the light worker or light warrior uh, essence within them and uh, basically to help them, their light shine a bit brighter. And then uh, that means then going out in the world and uh, helping, helping in some sort of way. The, the monastic life, we really were uh, big on the, the concept of service. And so service, being a healer, um, sharing your gifts, all that is you know, is sort of part and parcel of the same package. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, um, it, it's interesting because I think there's a certain period of time where one, and this sounds like maybe your experience, but one goes within and you really start to build your consciousness, raise your consciousness, right? And use meditation and things like that and become aware. But then it starts to go stale if you're not sharing it and giving it away. It becomes sort of this self-obsession spirituality, you know yeah. what I mean? Well, you think, uh, I always think of life as a flow and, you know, my, my whole company is called Breath Flow. You can find me at breathflow.com. But, you know, this whole idea that, that life is this continuous movement and that um, if, we, if we're not sharing, it's like the stagnant eddy on the side of the river, you know, it just kind of swirls there and then it develops moss or mosquitoes and, you know, putrefies and, right. you know, you, you need to keep it moving and moving is, is having it and then passing it on, having it and passing it on. That's a great metaphor. I didn't know it was called an eddy. I've heard the word, but I, know it <laughs> I can totally picture that because I spend a lot of time on rivers. Uh, that's really cool. So in terms of the breath work, is that that first technique that you used is what you've been, you've stuck with this whole time? Uh, very much so. It, um, you know, what I usually instruct people when I'm giving my breathwork classes is there's, there's dozens, if not hundreds of breath work techniques out there. And many of them are diametrically opposed. Like one will tell you to breathe hard and heavy and others are telling you to breathe uh, gentle and, and easeful, you know, one's telling you to hold your breath, others are telling you not. Some are telling you to breathe through the nose, others telling you to breathe through the mouth. You know, people can get very confused as to like, what's the, what's the right way to breathe? And I, I feel that they're all uh, valid ways and that you, you really got to look at what's the end goal of each of these breath techniques. One may be like this fire breath of yoga, you know, <sighs> You know, this very, it's a very cleansing breath, a, a heavy exhaling, you know, so you're getting yeah. out toxins or, you know, uh, yoga has what's called the ujjayi breath, which is a, a very metered in and out with a aspirated sound, you know, you know, where it gives a very even keel to focus your mind and, and keep you in balance, which you need when you're all wrapped up like a pretzel and bouncing on one hand, mm -hmm. you know. It's funny that that breath is what I do 
when I'm recording podcasts, when someone, <laughs> when the other person's talking. Yeah. As you were doing that, I was like, that's what I'm doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> so it keeps, yeah. So it keeps you focused. It keeps you yeah, alert. Yeah, it keeps me huh? focused and keeps my, <clears throat> keeps my heart rate down. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just calming so I can stay present in the moment and not mm-hmm. get nervous about where it's going next or get caught up in my head and stay in my heart and in that intuition. So, yeah, so my cool. point is that the breath that I, learned the transformational breath really has a wide base of, um, of uses. So, uh, and it's a breath about letting go. The real, the real overlying purpose is to let go and let the breath start breathing you. We call this activation. When you're in an activated state, you're putting very little effort or no effort at all into the breathing process. And yet the breath is just humming along and you're, you're getting all these profound experiences. So, it's my belief that if you start by learning how to let go and relax, any kind of breathing technique that requires a little more uh, effort or or manipulation of the breath comes easier, and we're not, you know, we're not so constrictive rather than you know gently controlling. And then the other point is that this this particular breath has a wide variety of uses. You know, it's an emotionally cathartic breath. It's, it can be a physically energizing breath. It, uh, it can be a spiritually connecting uh, breath. So uh, if, if you were to wor- learn one technique and then stop your, you know, your exploration of breath work altogether, which I don't recommend, but if you were to do that, I would recommend starting with this technique because that you know, it will take you a long, uh, a long it's, way. It's multifaceted. Yeah, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. I just realized as you were talking, I actually went and did breath work this morning. I usually do it when I sun gaze every morning. Today, I couldn't wake up at five or whatever <laughs> time the sun rises here. It's out of control early. But uh, yeah, I, it's almost like I have a difficult time going a day without doing breath work now, you know, having incorporated. But I like what you said about... Um, you know, relaxing into it because I find it very difficult still, even after a few years of working with various uh, modalities of breath work, I find it really difficult to get started. Mm. It's like driving to the gym for me. I'm just like, oh God, I fucking hate this. And my gym is my brother's gym. I have a key and it's like a mile from my house. And I'm just like, I can't do this. Once I get in there and like move around a little bit, I get pumped and I'm into it. And that's how the breath work is. It's like the first few rounds, I'm like, God, this sucks. I can't do this. And then that, as you said, that sort of... um automation kicks in and you're going, wow, I'm being breathed and I'm not breathing. It's a cool experience to have. Um, I was listening to an interview with Stan Groff, the, I guess, the creator of holotropic uh, breath work, right? And, and I'd I'd see if you know about any of the history of it, because I, you know, I'm just, I just have a few sentences from what he said, but he was talking about how he was working with LSD in the sixties and then, you know, doing research, not like partying and going to Woodstock uh, and then, you know, became outlawed and demonized. And so he had to find a way to help people achieve that state naturally. And that's what eventually led him to breath work. Do you, do you know anything about the history of your lineage or, or other forms in general? Like yeah, well, who some of the key players were and how it came about? Sure. The best, the best I've been able to piece together, a um, few key players. I'd say the top three players are Stanislav Graf, who, who developed Holotropic, Leonard Orr, who developed rebirthing, and then Judith Kravitz, who developed this uh, transformational breath. And it, if I really go back, I, I was fortunate enough to get to meet Leonard Orr and take a workshop with him one day. And I, I kind of asked him because it seemed like he, he started, uh, well, from, the, from talking with him, he basically 
indicated that most of all this started with him back in the 1970s. He created this technique called rebirthing, which at first was done in a hot tub. And it was this whole concept that uh, we have trauma at birth that we don't have any control over. You know, I mean, just even trying to squeeze yourself through a little canal, you know, it, it's like uh, completely claustrophobic, but, you know, we, it's part of a natural process. But the idea is that we, we catalog a lot of trauma that, that we carry with us for the rest of our lives unless we do something about it. And they started doing this rebirthing, which was breathing in hot tubs and sort of recreating the birth experience. And at first they thought it was the hot water that was the, the catalytic element, but soon discovered that it was the breath. Now, breathing in hot water accelerates the whole thing, but the breath is the, you know, the main element. And then um, he told me, you know, I asked him about holotropic and he said, well, I gave Stan Groff his first breath session. Oh, wow. So whether that's true or not, it seemed like, and I do know that Judith Kravitz learned about breath work through somebody who was a rebirthing practitioner. And then she took that and developed, you know, a very, a a more unique style, uh, you know, that differentiated it from rebirthing. But so to me, tracing it all back, it goes back to Leonard Orr and rebirthing around the 1970s that created, you know, the big three, the holotropic, the, the rebirthing and the transformational breath. And then since then, dozens of other uh, variations on the theme, you know, whether people just rebrand it or, or develop little tweaks and, and stuff. So there's, there's dozens of them out there now. And then figures like Wim Hof have, have sprung up who I don't think were directly influenced by, you know, these techniques, but sort of developed his own thing. And, uh, but it is in this whole modern wave of, of breath practice and exploration. Cool. That's really useful information. Thank you. Uh, the idea of getting in water and doing breath work does not sound safe. <laughs> well, yeah, you sometimes want, you pass out. You want to do it with a facilitator. Right, you, have, you don't yeah. want to do it by yourself. That's a good don't, disclaimer don't. to give people. Yes, you know? yeah. uh, that's actually, I've done a few Wim Hof trainings and uh, that's something that he always says, like, don't do it in water because his whole thing's the, the ice bath, right? Yeah. And so people think you're supposed to do the fucking breath work in the ice bath. Right. No, you do it before and then you're kind of immune to the cold, which is which is interesting too because I it's quite cold in LA, right? I mean, for sorry, anyone listening that lives in North Dakota <laughs> or Iceland or whatever, but um, you know, it's been maybe in the, well, I don't even want to say because people get pissed and don't live there. But say it's like it's cold. Say it's it's fif- cold for, say for it's fifty Southern degrees California. in the morning, and yeah. you know, I what I do is I get right out of bed. I put my bathrobe on. I go onto my little balcony. I find that sunrise, and I start doing my breath work. But it's quite cold, you know. And you wake up, your body temperature is usually kind of low, and maybe after one round, I'm completely warm. Mm-hmm. It's just really interesting how you can really regulate your biology by using breath and oxygen. It's well, what you're doing, bizarre. oxygen, you know drawing back on my spiritual experience, oxygen is the carrier of prana. Prana is a Sanskrit word for life force energy. You know, yogis kind of know it, but uh, that prana is, is the, the essential element of life. You know, it is the intelligent activating agent and it, it is energy. So as we start drawing more of that energy into our bodies, uh, its intelligence coupled with our, our body's intelligence transforms that energy into what it needs. And, and, and heat is a form of energy, right? Heat is just uh, a transforming that life force into 
you know, heat, you know, on the infrared spectrum of, of the, you know, wavelengths of energy. You, you might transmute it into emotional energy uh, and have emotional catharsis. Um, so that, is, you know, is just a wavelengths of energy. So we're really, we're working with the, the life force itself um, and in its intelligence. If we can just bring it in here and, and let it have its way, it does what's necessary. And on a cold day, what's necessary is to warm up a bit. Right. right. And I do want to make a disclaimer too. When yeah. we're talking about the water breathing, yeah. uh, that was body temperature water, not the freezing cold water that right. Wim Hof does. Right. So, yeah. yeah. I think the cold water there's such a shock to your system that that probably makes it a little more risky than, you know, sitting in a hot tub and doing it. So yeah, definitely something to be said for that. So the interesting thing is we were discussing uh, at breakfast the other day is that this interview here at Rhythmia during this, this week that I'm here is taking place before I have the opportunity to experience your... There's three breathwork sessions or two? Yeah, the th- there's three, three days. days of breathwork. Okay. People usually are able to make two because they're usually flying on one of the days. Okay. Arrhythmia, we, we, it's a unique process. You know, the, the plant medicine um, is really sort of the, what we call the star of the show kind of thing. And we do that Monday through Thursday, four nights of plant medicine. People arrive either Saturday or Sunday. And that night, Saturday and Sunday are breath work nights. So we ease them in. Um, what's amazing and why I think uh, breath work and plant medicine work so well together is that they offer many of the same benefits and the same experiences. Um, I, I'll often say that they both, they both open the door to our consciousness, but the, the breath work will open that door and gently beckon you in and the plant medicine will open that door. And when you're not looking, it'll kick your ass in there and shut the door and then shake <laughs> up the, the room until you're, you know, and it won't let you out until you want to come, uh, until it wants to let you out. So... You know, so it's kind of nice to prepare for that experience by having a similar experience with the breath work, but having, you know, the breath, uh, it's both an asset and a liability that the breath work has an escape hatch, which means if you just, if you stop engaging in the technique, you know, you'll come down from your experience. Um, That's an asset in the sense that if you're, if you're really like concerned you know, the plant medicine, you can't do that. You've got to ride it out. The breath work, you, you, you can ramp it down. It's a liability in that the good news is that your stuff is really coming up. And, and when you really get the, um, the, the flow of the process, you want your stuff to come up. You want the, the scary stuff or the, the negative stuff and all that because it's, it's coming up to be released, to be purged, to be integrated. And, uh, if you abort your, your process right in the middle of it, you really haven't done yourself much of a service because you haven't, you haven't given yourself a chance to fully let go of that stuff. We'll be right back at you after this brief but important announcement. If you're someone that wants to be healthy, chances are the reason you want to be healthy if you really drill down is because you want to be happy. Well, you know what makes you happy is getting melatonin in your veins at night. It's getting serotonin and dopamine in your brain during the day. Do you know what makes those neurotransmitters and hormones happen? It's light. And if you are exposed to artificial blue and green light after dark and even during the day, you're suppressing your ability to produce these within your body. I don't want to get too geeky and scientific because I would stumble over my words and you might not even understand what I'm talking about. 
But after over three years of interviewing experts, a couple hundred of them now, uh, one of the underlying causes of all disorders and disease is artificial light at night. And if you just think about it from a common sense, nature-based point of view, we have not evolved to see this very narrow spectrum of blue light that exists in your LED lighting on your computer and probably inside your house and headlights and uh, street lights as you drive around at night. And anytime you go to the movies or a club or watch TV, anywhere you go at night, you're seeing a spectrum of light that doesn't exist in nature and that we haven't evolved to see. We've evolved to only see firelight and starlight and some moonlight at night. And so we've completely hijacked our bodies. We've become domesticated. And this is really, really harmful. Now it's easy to fix. You can still live your life, live your life, go out, go clubbing, have a ball, but you just have to wear your Blue Blocks glasses. So go to blueblocks.com, that's spelled B-L-U-B-L-O-X, blueblocks.com, and get yourself some of these dope glasses. They have a few different frame styles. They do prescriptions, they do reading glasses, and they do non-prescription glasses that block the different spectrums of harmful blue and green light. So go to blueblocks.com, Enter the code LIFESTYLIST at checkout to save 15%. That's LIFESTYLIST at blueblocks.com. And now, back to the interview. It's interesting that your breathwork comes later in the week after the four plant medicine ceremonies. Um, it's sort of counterintuitive, you know, I think because it's a more mild experience and one that you do have some degree of control over that that would come first and kind of get people acclimated to these different states of consciousness. And then you would work in to the medicine. Was it ever done that way? Or did you guys just know from the beginning, you wanted to get people on the medicine and then ease them back into, you know, uh, quote unquote, normal life. Right. Well, I guess I didn't explain, explain it quite right. We actually bookend the um, the medicine experiences with the breathwork. So we ramped them up in the beginning. Oh, okay. So, I got here on Sunday. Yeah. So that Sunday so, night. So I missed... Okay, I yeah, got it. So there's a few people who come in Sunday and miss it all together. Right. But ideally, you either arrive Saturday and you might miss Saturday night. So you've got Sunday night to do the breathwork. Or if you arrive in time, you've got Saturday and Sunday to do the breathwork. Got it. Um, and then you go into the plant medicine. And at the end of the week then what it really does is is three things. First, it helps tie up any loose ends. So, you know, the plant medicine experiences, um, you know, can, can, can have you going to all different dimensions of your being. And sometimes it's, uh, it's, um, you, you know, you want to wrap that all up and you want to, you know, tie up those loose ends, get, you know, bring things to completion. So the breath really helps do that. Second, it really starts to give people, um, the consciousness of returning home and recognizing that there's something that they can continue to practice at home. You know, most people aren't going to go and, and find a plant medicine ceremony in their neighborhood in the next week. And I don't advise that either. One, because most places it's illegal. And, and two, you know, your, your, uh, the, the, the safety, um, uh, concerns that, that we address here aren't, you know, necessarily in place at, at somebody's living room. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about that last night in ceremony. I was like, I'm so glad I'm not in like someone's apartment in Venice. Right now. <laughs> like, that does not sound like a good idea. I know a lot of people, I, a lot of my friends and colleagues have experiences right in LA and it's, I'm like, oh my God, I wouldn't want to be in like a field of EMFs and all that weird fucking energy right. in a city on right. the medicine. I, I love being out here because it's like, 
it's a very natural experience. Yeah, just and, and being wanna... a, you know, even though the, the medicine is not from Costa Rica, you know, we're still in that part of the world in this tropical jungle sort of climate and just the way the wind sounds and the types of plants and yeah. trees and the whole sort of integration of this natural habitat yeah. uh, is completely just perfect, a perfect setting for it. Right. So, so, yeah. so, you know, people come here, they do the plant medicine, so they, but they have to return home. And it's like, so how do I take this experience with me? And it's like, the breath work is a way to, to continue to evolve your experience uh, without having to find, you know, an ayahuasca person or, you know, go under the radar, whatever, um, in your own neighborhood. But the third thing that it really does, and probably the most powerful, is that it helps people claim their experience as their own. And what I mean by that is whenever we add something external to us, we have a tendency to attribute our experience to that thing. So I mentioned that plant medicine and breathwork are both just catalysts to open the doors, but they open the door to our consciousness. It's like what you experience comes from within you and the beauty and the realizations and all the discoveries are part of your divine intelligence. And when you, when you receive that same type of experience through breath work, where nothing external was added to you, there's something that clicks on a deeper conscious level. It's like, oh yeah, I get it. This is, I have this within me inherent. I don't have to necessarily have these external props to get me there. Now, you know, Rhythmia, you know, was started by our CEO, Jerry Powell. And, and in his downloads, he got that, you know, this place would offer shortcuts to, to, you know, to our, you know, to hacking our consciousness, essentially. And that was going to be plant medicine and breath work. And so they are, it is like, you know, these external things like the plant medicines are valuable. My point really is to, to recognize that they're valuable in opening us up to what already exists within us. And the breathwork really drives that message home because there is nothing external that we're, we're using and yet we're, we're still able to achieve That's those states. great. That's a great <clears throat> distinction. Uh, I think it was on the first night, they all kind of are turning into one night now, but it was the second one, whatever it was. I took my first cup <laughs> of the jungle juice and, uh, and just kind of took a nap and, you know, nothing much really happened. And then um, took the second one and nothing really much was happening. I was like, oh, okay, I guess that was, I mean, I had a little experience and then it kind of just faded away and I started feeling sort of back to my regular state of consciousness and went outside for a bit. And then I came back in and laid down. It just like hit me like a ton of bricks, you know, I'm just like, whoa, okay. Holy shit, I was taking on this amazing ride. And, uh, and the thought came to me, oh, it was just a brief intermission, <laughs> like in a movie. And then I just was laughing my ass up. Every time I thought of that word, I would just lay on my mattress, just cracking up. And I was like, what is so funny about that intermission? Why do I find that so humorous? I'm not like high on weed or something where you just laugh at stupid shit. There's all, you know, with this medicine, it seems there's sort of multiple meanings behind uh, some sort of emotional reaction mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And then right when I had that question arise, I saw the words split up in front of me, almost like in, you know, in, in a big giant font and it said inner mission, like yeah. I N N E R. And then that was equally hilarious because I realized that what the medicine's doing. And as you're saying, the breath work is, is it takes you on this inner mission. And it's really a mission of your own capacities for 
getting in touch with that universal consciousness and your mm. relationship to it as part of it. Yeah, well put. And so it, there is, you know, a nudge from the medicine or a nudge from the breath or whatever modality one is using, but ultimately it is your experience, your subjective experience of God, you know? So, yeah. Mm. And then last, last night I had, it was like, hey, there's the intermission, but then there's intermission. <laughs> E-N-T-R. That one came yeah, to us. Yeah, step like, through that door. Yeah, right? enter the mission. And, you know, of course, the mission is awakening. It's enlightenment. It's becoming um, conscious to the ultimate reality. Mm. Uh, question for you. Have you or does anyone ever get into doing breath work while under the influence of ayahuasca? We generally don't recommend it here because, and the main reason is both of them are very activating agents, right? So if you take the ayahuasca, that's the activating agent. If you if you're to do breath work during ayahuasca, you might just like, you know, go a little too far, or you know, too far for yourself. However, that being said, one of the reasons we do breath at the beginning of the week is to. Uh, introduce people to the breath as a tool which you can use very effectively during your uh, journeys with the plant medicine. So in other words, if you're having experience that takes you, you know, as we were talking about earlier, dredges up some darkness or, you know, makes you face some things that you, you know, had tried to, to block out in early stages of your life. Um, you know, again, that's the good news because that's helping you move through those. But during that process, it can be a little disconcerting. You can you can feel some heavy emotions and you can just not like it. It can be not pleasant. Working with the breath during those times in a gentler fashion. Um, so you do essentially do the technique that we teach here, only scale it down, let it be... Um, a gentler flow to the breath and that can that can help move you through periods of of unease or or scaredness or you know any of those uh uh emotional states that that can arise because you're you know you're experiencing something that's that's not that pleasant but it's on its way out so it can help really usher that along and move it move it from your consciousness yeah, that makes good sense. I, I can't imagine doing more aggressive breath work on the medicine. No. When when I'm when I ingest that stuff, uh, which is kind of I think I was telling Jerry yesterday in our interview. To me, it sort of kind of tastes like Jägermeister. It's uh-huh. This licorice sort yeah, of prune right. yeah, flavor. It's I, just, I, it's weird, but it not that unpleasant to me. It's not like I would go buy it at Whole Foods, like you know, like a decaf version of it, and drink it as a you know elixir or something. But it's not horrible. But once it's in my stomach, it's like, whew, I've not gotten sick. Knock on wood, I, which I'm very grateful for. Um, but there is like a, a sense of nausea and uh, not dizziness, but just definitely, I don't want to move around. Let me yeah. just put it that way. Especially when I'm in a wave of like that deep experience, like mm-hmm. I don't move a muscle. But then what happens is because I'm I'm allowing myself to be so still and just surrender to the experience is that I find myself, I stop breathing and sometimes for long periods of time to the point where there was a couple moments where I thought, hmm, can I stop breathing altogether? And, you know, there's no time when you're in the medicine. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how long it was, but I felt like I at one point laid there for a really long time with just my breath exhaled uh-huh. and not breathing at all to the point where I was like, 
I might die if I just keep doing this. Like it went on forever. And then finally I was like, I, maybe this is not safe. And I, you know, allow myself to take a breath, but it's, it's interesting. And in the, in the more gentle breath, what I find is that if my body starts to tense up and there's any resistance to this super powerful experience, all I have to do is just kind of like, just take a belly breath and then I melt back into the mattress. Like, you know, just, I don't know, like a big slab of pate. You know? <laughs> <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> But it's the breath that brings me back to that surrender. You know, I find if I stop breathing, then the body starts yeah. to tense back up. So well, I can that, see. That gets into the, uh, the physiology of breaths and emotions. You know, each emotion we have has a corresponding breath pattern. And those that we tend not to like, fear, anxiety, stress, come with a shallower breath pattern or where we end up holding the breath all together. So, you know, if we perpetually do that, we will induce these states of anxiousness or these states of feeling stressed out or, or tense. You know, on the flip side, the, the, the feelings that we enjoy, generally speaking, peace, love, happiness, come with a, a more fluid, deeper, and, and continuous breath pattern. So uh, we, the whole science of breath work is to induce these states that we enjoy or to remove the states that we don't by engaging in, in a, a breath pattern that you know, is in alignment with what we're after. So yeah, that's, that's exactly what the technique is. That makes perfect sense. In terms of your own experience with uh, ayahuasca, had you done it before you came here or how long have you been working with that medicine? Uh, I had done it, the uh, first time I did it was six years ago and I had a pretty heavy duty experience that, you know, didn't, uh, you know, I didn't feel like I needed to do it again for, you know, I ended up doing it two years after that. And then I had another heavy duty experience. I was like, oh, I don't need. When you did do- the first two times, was it a series of of, uh, of ceremonies like we're doing here, or just a one? No, just a one off. Oh, okay. Yeah, for me. I mean, there was an. It was like a weekend. You could have done two in a row or something, but I just did one. Mm. And uh, and then um, waited another two years, uh, and then I was introduced to rhythmia. And so since then, I've I've probably done thirty five. Um, ceremonies or something like that. Yeah. And is this something you imagine that you'll continue to do or do you feel at any point you'll kind of, okay, I get it. I've accomplished what I want to accomplish and then just, you know, do your breath work. Well, what's the sense? I mean, you can't predict the future, but what's the sense you get sitting here right now? Are you like, yeah, I could see myself doing this multiple mm-hmm. times or are you in the end of an arc? Because some of the people that I guess the, the shaman that are running things last night, specifically, I believe her name was Sarah that I spoke with mm-hmm. last night. She was <laughs> so interesting, but I, I went and talked to her and, you know, just, I was just so fascinated by her when I was under the medicine. She was dancing and stomping around and playing music and singing. I was just like enthralled with her energy. And so I had to go talk to her afterward and she explained her journey. And anyway, it's a long story, but perhaps I'll get to interview her at some point. But I was like, so you know, how often do you do this? She's like, oh, usually, uh, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, every week. And I was like, you, you do this all the time? She's like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm on the medicine right now. We're all on it. Like all of the helpers and the various uh-huh. shaman and stuff. I was like, you gotta be fucking kidding me. You can like operate like a kind of a normal person and have your faculties on this shit. I can't even move, you know? So it was interesting. And I got the sense from her that it's just like, this is her life. 
she's just yeah. on the medicine all the time and healing people <clears throat> well, with it. You know, is is your journey ever going to evolve into something like that, or is it just like well, for a here me, and there thing? you know, I see, I see again with all these, they are all tools: meditation, breath work, plant medicine. You know, the and you know whatever for other forms, movement even can can be a form a tool for opening up our consciousness, basically. And I feel like uh, all the tools are valid. And, you know, to me, while the resource is available, I, I allow myself to partake in it and, and allow that tool to be useful to me. Like I said, when I go, uh, go back to the U.S., uh, you know, my life uh, takes me in a new direction beyond Rhythmia. You know, I'll probably focus which, on what I was focusing on before, which is my breath work and, and sharing that with people and showing people that that is a valid um, method uh, of opening our consciousness, releasing our, our emotional and uh, energetic garbage. And, and that will lead some people, you know, I'll always have this experience with me and uh, the, this sort of... Uh, what we call it, you know, point on my resume, essentially, that people will be interested in. And so I'll be able to guide people, you know, who are curious about the medicine, whether it's something that they should go explore or not, which, you know, in, in most cases, I'd say it's a, it's a good thing. There, there are few people that I might steer away from that, but are, you know, to get to come here anyway, you have to go through a screening process and, and the kind of people that, that we'd steer away you know, have a history of deep psychological issues or they're on medications or they've got physical issues that might be contraindicative to, to just the safety of, of being on the medicine. So, you know, we, we want to give as many people the experience as possible, but we also want to make sure that it, it's safe for them physically, emotionally, and psychologically. Yeah, so. When I was in ceremony, <clears throat> uh, actually all three nights, I had flashes of almost every single person I care about. And especially last night, I really saw oh, just like how much I've been injured and, and harmed and all of the trauma. And I'm not being melodramatic. I mean, it's just a fact, you know, just <clears throat> looking at my childhood and just so many things I've experienced that I was, um, were perpetrated on me or that I later perpetrated on myself in an effort to absolve myself of that pain and that trauma. And looking at that, and then I started looking at all the touchpoint relationships in my life, and I could not come up with one person that hadn't been horribly traumatized in their life, you know? Yeah. It's like everyone I've ever dated, my, every member of my family, like the whole lineage going back to great-grandparents. It was just like, wow, everyone has just been completely <laughs> banged up by the human experience. And so I started, oh, man, when I get home, I got to tell so-and-so to go and this person to go. And I'm like, you guys have to do this. And I don't, you know, I don't like to proselytize and... You know, if people don't invite my opinion, I tend to not give it, um, except on the podcast. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just started thinking. And then there were a couple of people I thought, oh, this would be great for them. And I thought, no, too, too fragile because of those other, you know, physical issues, psychological issues, mm -hmm. uh, different medications and things like that. I thought, no, they'd have to, they'd have to work through some of that first, I think. That, that, I think that's really sound, um, sound wisdom right. on your part, you know, and I can appreciate the the container of safety here too that makes a lot of sense 
So we do a good job. And and when people call to come and I say, if you're, if somebody's listening and they're questioning, well, am I that kind of person or should I not go or should I call and try to, and, and interface with, um, you, you know, those who, you know, the, the first uh, line of Rhythmia basically, because they'll ask you these questions and they'll give you a sense of um, whether, uh, whether it's a good idea or not. And, you know, I mean, some of the, the hard lines are if you're on certain kind of psychotropic medications um, that you need to be clean from those for 30 days before coming and you need to spend whatever time ramping down from them to get clean for 30 days because most of those you can't go cold turkey on. Um, the, you know, pharmaceuticals are, are heavy duty drugs. Yeah, I've, I've <laughs> so. experienced that. I was on antidepressants many years ago and if I would run out, I would start to go crazy. I'd be calling my shrink, like, can you leave some at the front desk? You know, like, I think sometimes he could even put them in the bushes, like in front of the office building <laughs> in Beverly Hills, you know? And I was like, this is weird. I think I'm addicted to this shit. Eventually, thankfully for me, I'm not recommending anyone, anyone else feel the need to get off your medication. But for me, it was like, oh my God, once I got off it, I felt so much more sane. But who knows? Maybe it got me through a period right, that I wouldn't right. have survived. You just don't know when you're... Yeah suicidal as I was and well, there's like values that. for these things but yeah. in in general we we offer them with a a easy hand and yeah. uh, and tend to end up becoming dependent on them more than necessary in, yeah. in a lot of cases so. it definitely seems to be a lot of um, misdiagnosis of people processing trauma they've experienced and mental illness. Mm. You know, it seems to me a lot of what we call mental illness is just people in pain that don't have a means by which to process that pain and heal from it. So, yeah, it's an interesting paradigm. But thank God you guys don't take people on five different psych meds and put them in that fucking ceremony room. That would be an interesting experience. With that thought, I just want to follow that, is that if you are on those meds and you feel like it's like there's something more that the meds aren't doing uh, you know, the side effects are worse than the, the positive effects and you really would like to like to find some alternative. This is what um, this experience at Rhythmia, the plant medicine seems to help a lot of people to rebalance. You know, like you said, you may use those meds to get you through some period of life, but when you realize that this isn't, this isn't a sustained endeavor. You can't stay on those meds forever without, you know, suffering some serious effects that you may choose to, you know, to, you know, to wean yourself off and then to have this kind of experience that's going to help you rebalance in a way that, that you can sustain going home in your life. Love it, dude. (laughs) I got one more question for you. It's a three-parter. So I've learned so much from you today, as have our listeners. Uh, who have been three teachers or teachings that have influenced your life, your work that you might recommend uh, the the listeners of the show go check out for themselves? Three teachers. Well, so first of all would be Paramahansa Yogananda. Uh, that was the, the spiritual guru who um, started the Self-Realization Fellowship, came to from India to America in 1920s. The second Indian to really spread Eastern teachings here. And so now all the things you see today, you know, Ganesh t-shirts and yoga studios and namaste and all this, you know, uh, all is commonplace these days because of these pioneers, Yogananda and uh, Vivekananda before him. 
Uh, so he's definitely one I think is is a world teacher, and no matter what what you know faith you're in or or whatever, if you really read his stuff with an open heart, there's a, a lot of wisdom to learn there. Uh, then I would probably go to um, a breathwork teacher, probably my breathwork teacher, Judith Kravitz. You can read her book, Breathe Deep, Laugh Loudly, or or you know get into that whole field and wisdom of breathwork, which uh, you know to me is 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 our fundamental tool. It's what you know our fundamental God given tool that um, can can help us navigate through these treacherous waters of life um, with a lot more ease and grace and elegance. And then uh, third, I'd say Greg Braden comes to mind. Oh, I love him. Greg Braden. He, yeah. uh, he I got to get him on the show one of these days. Yeah, do. Yeah, uh, maybe I, I may be able to connect you because oh, nice. he, um, he came here to Rhythmia and he, he loved the breathwork so much that he invited me to to go uh, do it for him at his his event last year from Cell to Soul, it's called in New Mexico. We're doing wow. it again this year um, in in March in New Mexico, and he's he's just got a great you know he's a scientist, you know I'd say spiritual scientist where he he posits theories on you know uh, 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 on things that you know, have to do with human evolution and such on a much more spiritual level based on evidence, based on evidence that most people have, have um, dismissed because it isn't in alignment with the, you know, the common prevailing theories of the day. And, and, you know, much against what we think science should do is take evidence to say, oh, here's something new. Let's see if we need to make a new theory as a result of this new evidence. They say this evidence doesn't fit our prevailing theory, let's put it in the closet and stay with, you know, with our, our theories here. So he really looks at this evidence and, and, and makes, uh, you know, makes postulations about um, what, you know, what mankind is really all about. And I think the, the, the beautiful thing about that is how we can solve the issues, our impending issues of the future you know, based on some of this uh, evidence and wisdom. So he's a great guy to... That's, to that's great, up. man. Yeah, I love him. You're the first one to ever um, cite him as, as one of your influences. So I'm glad to be reminded of him. Yeah, you used to... Um, read some of his books and his audio books. There was one in particular that was all about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm. And they talked <clears> about this fourth mode of prayer, I think he called it, where, you know, indigenous peoples have... We typically use a couple forms of prayer. I forget what they are. But anyway, the prayer was that... When you're praying for something, you're praying as if it's already happened and you're giving gratitude for that thing as a reality because on a quantum level, everything does already exist, right? And so that's something I, I picked up from him and I, I've been using ever since, going uh, back, I don't uh, know, God, at least 15 years ago or something like that. Yeah, so, yeah. he's been around since the 90s and, uh, and the, you know, the final word on him is just he's an incredibly nice guy. Like you would never know that he's as a big wig as he is when you're interacting with him, he's just kind. He's like focused on you, uh, and uh, he seems to like me. So <laughs> <laughs> right on, I'm man! Like, well, yeah, congratulations on getting to do yeah, some thanks, stuff with man. him. That's yeah. great. 
Uh, in closing, where can we find you? Mention your website. Give us your website again. Um, anything social media, anything you want to share and point sure. people towards? Sure. Well, I am R. Christian Minson, the letter R, and then Christian Minson, M I N S O N, on Facebook, Instagram, the uh, YouTube. Uh, my, uh, my website is breathflow.com, B R E A T H F is in fabulous, L O W.com. And uh, there, you know, you can find a little more about breathwork and and my schedule of events, which um, needs a little bit of updating right now. but um, And then, of course, Rhythmia, Rhythmia.com, R-Y-T-H-M-I-A, uh, no H after the R, uh, for, for finding out more about what's going on here at Rhythmia. And so I'd say awesome, those man. links will, will get people far. Well, thank you so much for your time, man. And I look forward to doing some breath with you. Right on. Thank right, you. Dude. Yeah, brother. That concludes our interview with Christian. Makes me want to do some breath work right about now as I sit here and record the bits and pieces that we're missing from this two-part series. Uh, I love breathing. In fact, before I recorded here today, now that I'm back at my home studio, I actually went outside and did some uh, breathing exercises while hanging upside down doing a little inversion therapy. Sometimes it's really fun to, um, well, don't do that at home, kids. Uh, I was doing it on a machine called the Back Revolution, which kind of locks your legs in and you can hang upside down. I wasn't doing like breath work that can make you pass out, by the way, because that could be dangerous. But I'm reminded as I review this interview how important the breath work is and also of the many really rather psychedelic heart and mind opening experiences I've had with breath. So whether or not you endeavor to ever try any plant medicines, uh, that could or could not be your journey. I guess you'll know by the end of part two here if that's something you're interested in or perhaps you've already done that. But let's not forget the power of uh, the natural high of our breath. So that concludes, Christian. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to now jump right into my second interview that took place the same day. As I recall, and my memory could be spotty because there was so much going on on so many levels and so many dimensions during my week at Rhythmia, but I think I grabbed my equipment and then ran into my interview with Dr. Jeff McNary, who's been working in the healthcare field for 25 years. And according to him, he's seen firsthand that the current Western system of healthcare is truly deficient in healing the population. That's why today, Dr. McNary's work bridges ancient modalities such as plant medicine with modern psychology. And this second interview is a really important conversation for me, as I mentioned in the intro in part one, uh, just due to the fact that I have such a, a profound relationship with drugs in my past. And, you know, while we don't necessarily refer to ayahuasca and some of the other plant medicines as drugs, when it comes down to it, they are, you know what I mean? Uh, or derivative of a plant that is now a drug. And um, so since I had some history in addiction, it was really important for me to get Jeff's take on this and to really hear from him his firsthand experience in working in recovery for so many years and treating so many people with mental and emotional disorders. And um, it gave me a lot of confidence that I was on the right path. I mean, I was already a couple days in here. I'd done a couple ceremonies with a couple to go. So I felt that my intuition had guided me correctly and that this was a beneficial um, and a great learning experience for me in general. But it was really cool to hear from him in this interview, like what was actually going on in my brain and that I was indeed safe and that I didn't have to worry about 
coming back to California and ending up in a liquor store or a crack house or any of the other sordid places that I found myself in earlier in life so many years ago. So I was really glad to get his take on it. And this is just also a really fun conversation too. Jeff's a great guy, very down to earth, super smart, but very relatable. So you're going to really enjoy this one. Here's what we talk about in this conversation with Jeff McNary, how the staff at Rhythmy ensures that the plant medicine experience is safe for everyone involved, which is really important to me. So I don't want to be freaking out and end up wandering through the jungle alone. You know what I'm saying? The fact that a lot of what we call mental illness is just people in pain without any way to process that pain. The irony of using a drug to get off drugs, aka why plant medicine is so effective for treating addiction. Then we talk about the fact that the first two nights I had these incredibly deep psychedelic experiences yet left feeling even more committed to my drug-free life. There is some irony here that he does a great job of explaining. Then the differences between iboga and ayahuasca experientially and physically. And then how plant medicines actually help you work your way through trauma and begin the healing process. And why we can't connect with other people until we get truly connected to ourselves. Why Rhythmia accepts people who are shunned or devalued in many Western medical facilities due to their particular mental illnesses. What science is starting to learn about the pineal gland and DMT. This was a really cool part of the conversation. That tripped me out. And it's going to trip you out too. And then finally, we talk about how a dog helped me find God. So sit back and enjoy this interview with Jeff McNary. If you're the sciencey type and you want to mix your science with a little of the woo-woo spirituality and get esoteric, this is going to be the conversation with you after this talk. We've got some more field reports after ceremony three and four that you won't want to miss. You are now a guest on the Lifestylist Podcast, Jeff. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to meet you, dude. Nice to meet you. Thanks for coming to Rhythmia. Absolutely. It's a crazy place in a great way. It is a (laughs) trip. Yes, it is. So I'm excited to interview you specifically. Uh, I interviewed Brandy, Jerry, and Christian already. You'll be the fourth, I guess. And Mm -hmm. I think the fourth and final interview in this process. And one of the things that I find so fascinating about plant medicine, whether it be iboga, ayahuasca, whatever, is its application for addiction, alcoholism, et cetera. And you have an extensive um, experience in psychotherapy and working in rehabs and all this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. I'm like super stoked to talk to you about this because of all things bizarre about ayahuasca that I'm discovering now that I've had it on three nights uh, is that people use a drug to get off drugs. Yeah. And coming from the paradigm of recovery and sobriety that I do. Sure. When I got sober, one of the big barriers to entry was that I had to quit smoking weed. Yeah. I was just like, God, I, you know, give up heroin. (laughs) Sure. Crack, please take fucking crack out of my life. (laughs) It's not even fun, but I can't stop doing it. And then, you know, even alcohol just got to be such a drag. But letting go of the weed, you know, I just, every time I would try to sober up and keep smoking weed, I'd eventually end up back on drugs, yeah, you know, yeah. and be strung out horribly. And then once I finally surrendered to that, it was like, okay, I get it. I'm sober now, which is, mm-hmm. you know, 22 years ago, just about in, in a couple of weeks. And then once I surrendered the idea that I couldn't smoke weed, I just thought, okay, well, I'm never doing any kind of drug ever again, let alone a really potent psychedelic. Sure. And here I am. Uh, three days into this, 
feeling extremely sober. Like I don't, there's no part of me that's like, oh, maybe I'll go home and smoke weed now or yeah, clear minded. Yeah. I wish I had uh -huh. some wine or, you know, it's just like, there's no way I'm going into a relapse as a result of yeah. ingesting this medicine. Exactly. I have a sense that say I was back in LA and someone gave me a line of Coke. I've, I'll probably end up in prison or on the streets. Like where that takes me historically sure. is this chain reaction uh, of triggering that mental obsession and the physical allergy and all that. Correct. So I find it so fascinating that this particular medicine, or some could call it a drug, um, I guess there's the distinction would be in your intention in doing it mm -hmm. to escape yourself or to go within yourself, which yeah. would be the case of medicine. But I find it so mm -hmm. fascinating that here I am and I'm not triggered in any way whatsoever. In fact, I feel more committed to having a drug and alcohol-free life than ever because yeah. there's like even less of a reason to use that as a coping mechanism now Correct. that I'm experiencing this heart opening and this healing mm -hmm. throughout the past, you know, four days or so. So um, that's a, a, a long sort of intro <clears throat> statement slash question that's going to lead me into uh, just a little bit, maybe a, 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 an abbreviated version of your background in, um, you know, mental health work and mm -hmm. addiction. Like where do you come from and when did the plant medicines enter into your lexicon of tools. Okay. So those are all, I'm excited by the way, to cool. talk about this stuff. Cause it's like right up my alley. Yeah, I excited. had a feeling. Yeah, it's perfect. Um, I have a master's in public health from UCLA and I also have my doctorate in psychology and I've been working in healthcare about 25, almost 30 years. Worked for the department of health of Hawaii. Uh, mostly my career has been in LA and I've been managing healthcare agencies, big ones, for 15 years. One of them being Passages Malibu, where I was the administrative director for about eight years. And I've been working in a private practice and I was running clinics at UCLA and working in locked psychiatric units in Pasadena and all kinds of different stuff with the really most severe patient populations, which is trauma, addiction, and acute mental health. So those are my, those are my peeps, you know, and I love them and they're awesome people. So I learned a lot from them too. Like, you know, when you're working with people that are struggling severely, the clinicians, if they're good, I believe, learn from their patients too. So it's not a one-way street. It's like a dual thing. So I am who I am today because of all the people I've worked with. You know, it's not all this studying I did in 18 years of grad school and half a million bucks in student loans. It's none of that crap. It's the people I worked with as patients. This led me to this. So, you know, what, what happened was, you know, I've always been a rebel in healthcare ever since the beginning. And I knew going into it that it wasn't a system that was efficient, in my opinion. Because I grew up in a part of Los Angeles where it was low income underserved. It was a rough area. A lot of my buddies are in jail or died. And it's just a rough place. Now, it's not so rough now. We all know things have changed on the <laughs> east side of Los Angeles, right? Southeast, yeah. northeast side. Yeah. But uh, it was when I was a kid. It was totally different. And uh, what I what I realized about the system of healthcare, even at a young age, was that this isn't curing or helping people in a way that we really need to. Now, as far as like, if I get into a car accident, I definitely want to have a Western doctor helping me fix my body, like trauma related stuff, like it's physical, cool. But if I have mental health issues, if I have addiction, if I have a history of being abused, there's not a lot of stuff that's, I believe, effective for people. And it just spins them out into worse situations. And it's all liability prone from the practitioner's side. So they have to do these certain protocols that really are not effective, in my opinion. So, 
when I was at uh, Passages, I was working and that was sort of back then. Now it's, you know, there's a lot of non, let's say 12 step places now. But back then it was like the first sort of non 12 step place. So it was kind of like just another place if people didn't want to do the 12 steps, even though we took them to meetings every night if they wanted to go, but it didn't do like a, it didn't do like a 12 step work at the place. Oh, right? interesting. Yeah. Oh, so I didn't, it, it I didn't did know more that. therapy. It did more um, spiritual counseling, did a lot of body work, did a lot of meditation. It was kind of more like, Buddhist Zen sort of vibe rehab. That's kind of what it was. And I liked that, you know, and you know, people that went to other places want to go to 12 step. That's cool. Right. But we were just the kind of the first one that didn't have that per se as its main focus. So I was learning all these different kind of holistic ways to work with people that have addiction. And I was like, still seeing the, the relapse rate was very high. And even there, you know, it's kind of a nationwide stat. It's like 12% if they do a rehab stay, we'll stay sober. So that's not, that's not that great, right? So Jerry showed up, the CEO of Rhythmia, and he was just this animal. I mean, he was just an, a difficult dude. And, you know, I would interview people, and I'm sure he probably told you a little bit about this, but from my perspective, it was very interesting because um, I had to meet every guest when they got there and determine what treatment team would be best for them. So I had all these therapists and MFTs and all these people, right? And I would kind of match them up. So when I met Jerry, I'm like, there's nobody <laughs> that can, I don't want to turn him loose on my staff because he'll eat them alive. So I said, all right, I'm just going to suck it up and I'm going to work with them. Because him and I sort of had this vibe together, like it, it could kind of be cool. So I started working with him and I, and I was running the facility. I didn't take patients, you know, I was running the facility, but I took him. And we worked together for five years, not inpatient, for two months inpatient, and then another five years outpatient. And we were both at our wits end. What do we do? He's still tripping on doing drugs. He, he stopped doing Demerol. That's what he came to passages for. He didn't come for any other things. But, you know, so he's still womanizing and, and fighting at, in Malibu, getting into a fight at Nobu, you know, that kind of craziness. And uh, doing drugs, you know, Coke and all this, drinking like a fish. He did plant medicine in Costa Rica on a whim. He was challenged to do it by somebody and he did it and it changed his life. And he called me immediately. So I was like, dude, I've, I know a little bit about plant medicine. You know, I've heard about it. I've read a couple things, but I don't know a ton about it. So I said, I'm in, dude, I'll come check it out. I flew down here and a couple of weeks later, I was with him and his son and our, one of our workers, our assistants, Hamid, who works with us. He's not an assistant. He's a manager of our Malibu office. And uh, we did it and it just completely changed my life. It was incredible. And I didn't even really know what I was there to work on because I, you know, I, was, I was already working in, as psychology stuff and I have to do all this therapy on myself to get my degree. So, you know, I was like, you know, I'm married, got some kids. You know, I, I was like, I'm cool, right? Like I'm good enough. Not the case. I was a mess and I just was hiding it and I wasn't really happy. And so I learned how to connect with myself and it just completely changed my life. So that's where Jerry and I wanted to have a spot where we could have safe, medically licensed, people could feel comfortable. We could be like a bridge between Western medicine and indigenous sort of jungle medicine, right? Which is kind of intimidating for a lot of people. Even though it's really cool, it's kind of rough to ask, you know, a CEO mom who's a single mom to go to Peru and climb up a mountain for a week. I mean, you know, they do it, but it's a lot to ask. So this is a little bit more approachable, you know, here. Is that that's basically like how this all started for me? Was your first uh, ceremony with Iboga? Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. What, what subjectively, I'm, I'm assuming you've done ayahuasca since. Yeah, a bunch. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, what subjectively for you is the difference between those two uh, plants? Well, what they say, and I believe this to be true, is that, you know, ayahuasca is kind of like the, the mother, like the, the maternal loving sort of mother earth vibe that kind of nurtures you and helps you see things and kind of m- mothers you. And that's not, not another good way to say that, I guess. Just it's like your mom who's loving. And ayahuasca, or I'm sorry, iboga is like your stern grandfather who's not going to take any crap, who's going to kick your butt and show you what you're doing wrong and you better change it. He's going to show you who you are, what you've been doing, why your spiritual self is pissed off and unplugged and what you need to do to resolve it. So it's just like crystal clear what you need to do. Those are the two differences. And what about like the um, the duration and the number of doses and you know like the physical feeling, the the uh, propensity to vomit and purge and all that is is all of that similar? Or it's are they a little different. different. It's a little different. Like when you take ayahuasca, it's a more of a it's more of like what we would call in medicine a depressant, where it kind of makes you just, you know people get anxiety sometimes, but it, it kind of relaxes you. It's it makes you kind of chill and sometimes sleep a bit. Whereas iboga, it's a stimulant. Oh, so, but you get, you have ataxia during it, which means that you can't, you don't really have much control over your, over your muscles. You can get up and walk around, but it's just kind of like, you're a little unstable. You need some help. And, but your, your, your mind is just going, just clicking and you're awake and you're not sleeping at all. And that lasts about 12 hours or so. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. That sounds terrifying. It's, it's a little, it's a little rough, right? Oh, but but um, ayahuasca, as you've noticed, right, is... If you just drink once, like a, a certain dose, two to four hours, if you just drink once, and then it's pretty much over. That's like the half-life is two to four hours of the of the active ingredient. Yeah. The first two nights, I took the first one and just kind of slept and relaxed. And, you know, felt a little something buzzing, but yeah. nothing super, not the alien invasion shit. <laughs> and then the first two nights and the second one, I was maybe 15 minutes after taking that shot, I was like... The, you know, the funny, the, the phrase that keeps coming to me every night, including the first two, was when it starts to happen, the phrase that comes is, you got to be fucking kidding me. <laughs> I just keep saying that. I'm like, yeah. just when I think it gets more <laughs> profound and more strange and beautiful, yeah. I'm like, then another level unfolds. And I'm like, now you've really got to be fucking kidding me. Are you serious? I kept saying that last night. I was like, you fucking serious right now? And I'm saying it out loud. Just like, what the hell? Yeah. Uh, but so the, the the first two it went like that, and the second night, dude, it it had been hours and hours since I did it. So we must have walked out of the the ceremony um, space at one one thirty a.m. after uh-huh. going in at five thirty p.m. Yeah, and started to feel you know sort of uh, stabilized. I I took a cold shower and you know, and then I lay down in bed, dude, and boom, yeah, it, it comes yeah. back, and yeah. I'm like, seriously, yeah. I was kind of done. I'm yeah. good for the night, you know, and I was kind of going, really? I would love to sleep. Uh, and then, you know, it was fine eventually. But sure. And then last night, uh, I had, I took a double dose uh, to start. in the first. Good, yeah. good, good, yeah. And that, dude, it was insane. I, it felt like I was laying there having the experiences I was having, which, you know, I'll go into perhaps in a solo part of the show or something, but just amazing revelations and realizations and much more, um, much more, I don't even want to say mental activity, but a lot more communication going on with myself, higher self, spirit, the medicine, whatever, like asking questions, getting answers, time traveling, seeing other people communicating with 
people from my past, yeah. family members, lineage of ancestry, nice. all of that. Whereas the first two nights, it was just being in consciousness and very few kind of actual revelations that came in the form of an inner knowing. It was just, yeah. holy shit, this is what it feels <laughs> like to be at one with consciousness and really experience being in my soul with very little interference from the ego, the personality, and the mind. So yeah. it was almost like it was sort of, the medicine was kind of going, watch this motherfucker, you know? And I was like, okay, you got my attention. <laughs> you know? The first two nights kind of like, okay, I'm in, You're in. I'm in. This is, this is cool. Yeah. And then last night I just said, where do you want me to go? Where, where, where do you want to go? Just do what you got to do. Let's do this. You know, there's no boundaries. There's no limits to what I will face, what I'll look at, what I'll explore. And I just had this immense amount of courage and bravery That's that good. I was able to summon. And then we went into some healing stuff and there were some tears uh -huh. and all that. Uh, and it felt like, as I was saying, that I thought the night was almost over. And yeah. I, during it, I was like, oh, I guess I missed something. They're not doing the second uh, serving. Yeah. It was just the one. And I got it. Maybe that's why I got a double. Yeah. And because she said, hey, whoever <laughs> wants to go deeper, come up first and you get a two shots, you know, or one and a half shots. And uh, so I'm laying there going, cool, this is great. You know, just one. And then right when I'm in the middle of it still, they're like, okay, calling second service. <laughs> Are you kidding me? I go up and talk to the shaman. Oh, and man. I was like, was that wasn't the serving? She's like, no, dude, that was an hour and a half like the other nights. I was like, you've got to be. I felt like uh, so hilarious. bizarre. And then, you know, I had a different experience after that that yeah. was um, more just really being in the music and the chanting and less realizations. Anyway, uh, I, I digress. It's just, it's difficult to not share the experience because For I'm, sure. I'm it's still, exciting. Con still contextualizing it. Uh -huh. um, so I don't know, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where that goes, but it's fascinating that the experience is so different each time. And it's yeah. so different throughout the duration of uh -huh. the ceremony. It's just like, yeah. you have no idea where it's going. And as long as, for me, as long as I just completely surrender and just be in that state of trust and... Yeah, that's um, the right approach. You know, the understanding that I'm safe and no harm can come to me in or out of the ceremony, just allow it to take me wherever it's supposed to take me. It's been really, uh, really incredible. But I guess, I guess I want to go back to, you know, working in the treatment center mm -hmm. and I'd love to hear about some of the experiences you've seen that are similar to Jerry, where mm -hmm. you got a guy that guy or woman that doesn't resonate with the 12-step program and is mm -hmm. unable to apply that approach, which was very successful for me from day one. Yeah, it's click, I'm in. Like yeah, I good. did whatever I was mm -hmm. told. I was not one of these little punks that wouldn't go to meetings yeah. and wouldn't listen to your sponsor. It's a good structure for you. Yeah, I'm all, I'm all in. Like, yeah, cool. I, I just... I don't want to ever use again. That's my yeah, thing. I, yeah. I'll, I would have become a fucking Hare Krishna and sold books at the airport if <laughs> yeah, that's what I had yeah, to do. Yeah, you know, yeah, honestly, totally. there was there was no resistance to any of it. Yeah, but I know a lot of people. Um, that is not the case, and so. Uh -huh. You know, the way Jerry explained it, he was like, oh, I hated meetings. I went to rehab. He's like, I couldn't stand those fucking meetings. And then I took a boga and I'm cured. And now yeah. the guy can like drink a glass of wine here and there. I'm like, what? Yeah. It's the it's totally unorthodox sort of counterintuitive way to look at things. Yeah. It's so, interesting. So give me, you know, your perspective as a clinician uh -huh. who's seen, I'm sure, so many hopeless cases of Big people time. that can't get sober. Um, yeah. Give me some of your top healing stories, how someone's been rendered sober or free of addiction using plant medicine. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting to preface that a little bit. It's like my opinion on addiction is that everybody who is a quote unquote addict has trauma, whether it's historical before they started using and they're drinking or using to like kind of deal with it or they create trauma by their addiction. Both for Both me. Things, yeah. yeah. Totally. Both happen. Totally. And 
what plant medicine is really good for is trauma. It resolves trauma. And it's interesting because like, how does that happen? Well, the way it works is the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex link up during ayahuasca ceremonies. And the prefrontal cortex is our conscious, rational self. The amygdala is the subconscious part of the brain. And the emotions that get stored there during trauma, they come out and you get to deal with them and they move through you. And that's why people feel like amazing after they do it because it might have been a rough night, might have had some tears or some realizations that were hard, but they, it's, it's doable for the person. And they build new neurochemical pathways that don't have trauma associated with those memories, the emotional side. The emotional part gets released. Still have the memories per se, but it's not got the teeth that it used to have. And so that's why it's really good for addiction is because it resolves trauma. That part's beautiful. The other part is that it balances neurochemistry. So drugs, you know, let's say heroin or alcohol or whatever, it messes with your neurochemistry. It causes dopamine deficiencies. It causes serotonin surges that are not natural. And it's kind of like you're, you're, you're giving your brain this extra source of stuff and the brain gets used to it. And then when you stop, then you have all this withdrawal and cravings and all the rest of it. So with plant medicine, right? And the reason why it's like, I look at it differently than like a drug. I look at it as a medicine is because it doesn't do that. It doesn't deplete the brain of its neurochemical responses. It resets them all. And so when you have a reset neurochemical profile in your brain, cravings are not there. Physical ones are not there. You've worked on the trauma. So your emotional sort of triggers are not triggers anymore. And you've kind of come at it with a two-speared approach, you know, which what addiction is based on, in my opinion, because there's the whole craving thing that's physical. There's that whole underlying issue stuff that's not resolved. And plant medicine hits both of them. So that's what I love about it. It's very cool. That's fascinating, man. <laughs> I can't help like <laughs> reflecting back to the experiences I was having last night in that, in that first round. And dude, I mean, I've done so much therapy. I've done, you know, the Hoffman process. I've done um, uh, the one in um, Onsite in Nashville. Uh-huh. I yeah. mean, I've done deep dives, emotive therapy, totally. banging pillows, role yeah. playing with yeah. your mean dad and your crazy mom, yeah, you know, yeah. whatever. <laughs> All that shit. And just yeah. like getting what I feel is getting the trauma out and like releasing it. And, you know, and there has been a lot of healing dealing with, you know, the sexual abuse I experienced as a kid and facing that, talking about it openly. I mean, I've talked about it on the show now numerous times, which is still weird, but I I think it will help people that have gone through a similar experience to release the shame around it and learn how to heal it. Uh, But last night, dude, in, in regard to the trauma, I didn't, go back and experience the trauma as pain, but I was able to objectively really see mm-hmm. how badly I was hurt in my life by experiences mm-hmm. that I had as a kid. You know, mm-hmm. the sexual abuse being, of course, the one that I was led back to and I kind of knew that was that yeah. was coming. But, mm-hmm. you know, I've talked about it. I feel like I've processed it. I feel like yeah. I've healed. I've forgiven myself. I've forgiven my parents. I've, yeah. I've forgiven the perpetrator. Like, uh-huh. I feel pretty clear. Yeah. But I have to admit, I still do have an underlying sense of shame. Sure. Yeah. That, you know, that's taken me a long time to kind of come out of and feel good about who I am. And, yeah. and that's when I first experienced that shame. And mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, in the, in the ceremony last night, I was just shown the different points in my life in which I was deeply hurt. Mm-hmm. And it was mm-hmm. like, 
Fuck. Yeah, profound. Dude, the way I, I mean, like just to, like seeing myself as a kid and just imagining like the shit that I went through. And then, mm-hmm, as you said, mm-hmm. in active addiction, the shit that I did to myself and yeah, the situation. It all makes that, sense when you look at it like yeah, that. Yeah. And then seeing, you know, <laughs> most every relationship I've had with yeah. friends, lovers, et cetera, and my whole, every single person in my family has just been hurt terribly. Yeah. And just suffered so much trauma. And, yeah. And in that, there was, you know, some crying and some healing sure, and stuff. But it's healthy. I was wondering in that process is like, is this actually being healed and removed where I won't be, um, you know, triggered, for example, like uh-huh. something that in my life that's been, hmm, how do I say this in a way that preserves anonymity? Um, you know, having been abused, I wasn't raped technically, but uh-huh. it was a rape of my innocence, which yeah. is something I kind of, had to just really accept last night too. Like, uh-huh. well, why did that hurt me? And it was that, you know, my innocence at five or six, whenever it was, was uh-huh. taken. I was, yeah. I was no longer the same after that. Yeah. And, and then I, I've had really c- close female relationships in my life, three of them in particular, primary relationships um, in which the women were raped. Mm-hmm. And so like... Kind of a common thread in a sense, right? Emotionally. Yeah. And yeah. so... yeah. That's a really triggering of course. <laughs> concept for me, you know? So as I, I started to reflect on that and just send prayers and healing and communication to those, those mm-hmm. victims that I've had the opportunity to be um, close to and care about, mm-hmm. you know, I was like, is this process going to release those triggers of the trauma that I experienced as a bystander and as a victim myself, uh-huh. you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. And we'll, I guess it'll be revealed. Yeah, you'll like, see soon. And I would bet, uh, I bet the house on absolutely yes. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Definitely, without question. It will resolve that. Wow. Yeah. And the reason is because in your, in your brain, your amygdala, that initial moment, right, when you were five or six, was, first of all, it was super confusing to a five-year-old. Completely weird and confusing. Then it was probably scary. Then it was, like you said, guilt-ish vibe and maybe some shame. And it could have been a couple other things. And then it gets locked in there. But then, as you're maturing, now you're not five or six anymore. It's evolved and it's understanding and your brain is sort of like kind of how to deal with it. And so it's kind of morphed into this other sort of monster, you know? And what it's been led you to the drinking and the drugs and all the rest of it, right? That monster led you to that. Now you've like, you before you came to Rhythmia, you killed that monster, did a lot of work. You cleared out the garage of all the trash and junk, meaning the brain part. And now this here was just a dusting of the corners to make sure it's perfectly set and clean. And so that process right there is what leads you now to be completely in a triggering environment and not be triggered. Now, I'm not saying to go tempt fate, of course, right? 12-step <laughs> yeah. yeah. guys would kill me. <laughs> but but you know, don't walk into a bar you know, at midnight for no reason. Don't do that, right? But Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but uh, as far as like having that complete healing, you got it, man. You totally got it. And I see that a lot here. I see it every single week. I've had guys that are really successful. Like, let's say I had an attorney from LA come, super successful guy, miserable, kind of like Jerry, successful, but miserable and, you know, resistant and kind of a (laughs) know-it-all. And that's a rough combo for plant medicine, you know, resistance and knowing it all. So I had a little chat with him just to kind of like ease him in. He was a really nice guy. 
he freaking had the most amazing experience here. It was incredible. And you know what it broke down to? And I, to preserve anonymity, I won't say exactly. It broke down to like his relationship with one of his pets that had passed away and the way he was dismissed as a child for having love for certain things and it wasn't valued. So it's, it's often things from our childhood and they can be really severe stuff like abuse, but they can also be stuff that's maybe like not so horrific, but it sets a profile and kind of a, uh, sets the path for us to like not trust ourselves or not like ourselves or not feel validated in who we are as people. Cause this guy was like highly emotionally attuned, but he had like blocked it all by, because he was embarrassed by it as a child. And so he became this rigid, hardcore attorney guy with no emotion. And that was not his true self at all. And so he broke through that. And the good news is that he's doing even better in his career now. It's not like he throws his career away. He just can do it now in a great way. It's even better. Wow. Yeah, I'm thinking about that concept of trauma. I recently interviewed a fantastic guest named Mastin Kip. Who's um, he calls it trauma informed? You know, his work is all about overcoming trauma and healing it. I, and I, I don't think I asked him about plant medicine because I'm thinking this might be the shortest path to that yeah. healing, is what I'm getting right now. Yeah. Um, but as much as I could understand of his methodology uh, for, you know, healing trauma and thus removing those triggers that spin us back out into more trauma and difficult situations, was that this concept that the trauma that we each experience and pretty much everyone's experience on some level mm-hmm. subjectively kind of has the same net effect regardless of the severity of the trauma. And mm-hmm. so that mm-hmm. was something I was reflecting on last night too in ceremony was like, I mean, I've met people that have had way worse shit happen than happened to me mm-hmm. uh, for sure. I mean, I know people that have been through absolutely horrific experiences yeah. for years and years and years. Yeah. For me, there was a few points that were (laughs) rough. Uh, But then I was reflecting on some of the people, as I said, that I know and I could just see their pain and see their, you know, the the psychic injuries that they've had, people that I've loved or or, or love still. And and I was thinking about one in particular that it's interesting. (laughs) It's interesting doing... um, Doing these interviews in the middle of oh yeah man. A profound experience you're, 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 you're in it dude you're it's trippy it. it's, it's, uh, yeah but you're doing you're doing it man trippy. you're in the zone dude it's very so cool. I was seeing <laughs> uh, this particular person you know was not touched a lot as a kid and I, I don't think that uh, they were told they were loved and uh, yeah. their parents were good people yeah. and, and good to them just not affectionate like that yeah and I was thinking God that is so fucking traumatic it is it is. Yeah, children require that to feel safe. Yeah, and you know, yeah. no one no one hit them or sure. as far as I know, there was no sexual abuse. There was nothing weird. It was just mm-hmm. like a suburban family. They were great people, hard workers, provided mm-hmm. for the kids, but were disconnected emotionally and didn't have the yep. capacity to provide that that touch and that nurturing. Mm-hmm. And um yep. and that absence of that is the neglect of that is fucking traumatic. It is. You know, and so maybe that person, uh, they have a certain degree of uh, neurosis or perhaps go into addictions as a result of what was lacking, not necessarily what was proactively Absolutely. done to them or if they were 
uh, you know, victimized by That's a perpetrator. Right. Definitely. Right. Would you, Absolutely. what's your perspective on like the degrees of trauma? Cause I don't want to minimize someone's trauma who, yeah. you know, survived a concentration camp versus sure. me who someone, you know, touched me when I was five, you know, it's like, <laughs> True, I would yeah. choose my experience over some that are much more, you know, dramatic and, and, um, you the, know, the violent. I, and the whatnot. way I look at it for trauma, you know, it's like, and what you're saying is totally right on the money. Like okay. that's, I believe all the sort of approaches that you're explaining, but the way I like to look at it is, you know, when there's a traumatic event, people will, will do what's called uh, dissociation and they'll unplug during that traumatic moment from their emotional side. And so their physical side and their emotional side kind of break out. And that's basically fight or flight syndrome is what that is. And it helps them get through a situation that's hard behaviorally as opposed to emotionally because the emotions are too much. The emotions are confusing and overwhelming and they don't know what to do with them. And it can, be, it can be dangerous with emotions. Think of a veteran or a, a military guy in the war. You don't want the emotions present during a war. You want to be behaviorally doing your thing. And so it's like that. So it's like a, a minor trauma unplugs you for like a little bit. And then you're back and you feel the emotions. You're scared. A severe trauma breaks you out big time. And it can get stuck like that for the rest of your life. And in the most severe cases, it's... Uh, dissociative identity disorder, which is DID, which is like, you know, where people fragment into these different parts of their self. They have all these different identities and that's a totally extreme end of the spectrum. Whereas the other end, that's kind of more common, little traumas or, or maybe a, a, a childhood of trauma, you kind of get unplugged and then you kind of come back and you get unplugged and you can kind of be set like apart a bit. And you can still be successful and still have relationships and still do things, but you don't always feel that you're a part of anything really completely. And you feel like you're the odd one out, even though you have friends and everything, you know, you're doing well in school, but it's like, you don't feel, you feel like you're different the whole time. Wow. I relate to that profoundly. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> Felt like that my whole life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and nobody would say that about you to you during that time. They'd be like, oh, no way, man. You know, he's awesome. Looks cool. Right. They wouldn't, they would not know that, but you know it. And so what happens then is if you're unplugged like that and, and you want to like plug back in, but you don't even know that it's, that's your state, have a drink, do a line, smoke a bowl, boom, you're back in temporarily. And you think, wow, I feel normal, whatever that means yeah. now. Yeah. And I'm, I'm plugged into myself and this is cool. And then it wears off and you're back to like, oh, it's like, that's my medicine, that alcohol, that line of Coke, whatever it is. And that's how the addiction starts and gets going. And then, of course, we know it makes you unplug again. <laughs> it doesn't last, that thing, but it sets it, it starts to kind of get you to think about it. So that's why, you know, people always say, you know, they aren't addicts and they don't understand addiction. They say, ah, you know, they're just irresponsible and they're selfish and all this. Stuff. No, no, they're not. They just want to feel normal and a part of things and plugged into themselves. That's how it all starts. And it's trauma related. Wow. I'm sensing that part of this reaction to trauma, as you say, is that that lack of ability to connect intimately with other people. Mm -hmm. And uh, in my own life and Actually, quite a few people that I know, oddly enough, you know, birds of a feather <laughs> yeah. thing. Uh, I've been 
you know, I don't, sometimes I don't, I don't like to use clinical labels because then it's like, oh, I'm a this, but I would say my behavior has been that of what would be called a love avoidant in our uh-huh. current lexicon yeah. of psychology, uh-huh. right? Where I've loved and I've been loved, but only to a certain point. Yeah. And specifically to, in romantic relationships. We used to call that attachment disorder. Oh, okay. Back in the old DSM. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, and that's something that, I, I, I've seen within myself and I've seen how my capacity to connect, whether romantically or even in, in um, family and friendship relationships, just hasn't served me. And my heart started to open because of all the work that I'm doing. And now uh, in life, I feel very much uh, you know, a sense of fearlessness about just allowing my heart to be open probably nice. for the first time That's ever. Good. Yeah. Where That's, I don't feel... A- that's a big deal. I don't feel any breaks. <laughs> I mean, it's scary as fuck. It is scary. Don't get me wrong. It's, you Because you feel vulnerable. Yes, but I refuse to succumb to the fear as I have in the past and, and put up walls. And I'm also having a bit more uh, wisdom and discernment uh, mm-hmm. about the people with whom I allow in and not just like, cool, everyone come on in and leave myself vulnerable mm-hmm. um, in ignorance of where someone is on an energetic conscious level, right? Mm-hmm. But fuck, I'm 48. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's taken me a long time. And now as, you, as you're talking about this, this phenomenon or this process of trauma and that inability to connect, I see that within myself mm-hmm. because perhaps in those formative years when I didn't have that discernment or there wasn't someone there to protect me or whatever the case was, that there was an invasion of my space and my, uh, you know, mm-hmm. as I said, my innocence and yep. um, autonomy and this just had no control over what was happening to me. Exactly. And so um, I can see how the control mechanism, the uh, closed heart mm-hmm. and that, you know, seeming protection of the heart, which ultimately just hurts your heart, was um, the method by which I uh, tried to prevent that from happening anymore. That's good. Does, so that, you, does yeah, that make sense? It does. And you had, you know... I would say like your approach before coming to Rhythmia was like the best possible way you could do that. Like really being committed to like the things you were focusing on and having a lot of courage because it's not easy, right? And there's been scary moments as you did this sort of kind of connection with self thing. And you had, you sought out great, you know, programs and people to talk to. So that's like really cool. And that's, that's a great way to do it. You know, I'm all for that. But as we know, most people don't have access to that or they just don't know how to do it, or they don't have the money to do it or whatever. And they're just, or even the desire, they just, they're confused. So what I love about plant medicine is it's fast and you can boom, knock out stuff. Now, I always prefer that someone comes as you've come, that already worked on the trauma and already worked on as best as best they could, just different levels of resolve. Because then they're, they're like, they know they have the trauma and they're here to work on it. If people show up, never worked on their trauma and it's severe, we can still deal with that. We do every week and it's, and we still have great results, but it's just a little rougher. You know, <laughs> dude, the sound in the ceremony room that I'm hearing all night, I hear the roughness. Yeah, right. It's called puke hitting a bucket. Yeah. Retching, screaming, crying. And I've, I have had the sense, I mean, I don't, you know, want to compare my experience with other people's experiences, but I have had the sense like, wow, I'm really grateful that this is not sort of my first foray into the it's shadow. It's a big help. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've been working with the shadow elements of, of, of myself for yeah. a long time. And I think that made it easier for me to surrender and trust. And also, even though I, I haven't really directed what I want to work on, I've just trusted the intelligence of the plant or uh-huh. God or whatever it is nice. to show me what it 
feels needs to be worked and that's on. That's totally cool. That's a good way to do it. Yeah. And so I just, like I said, the first <laughs> couple of nights, I don't know that I really worked on anything. I just had the experience of being as present as I've ever been in the, mm-hmm. in the truest sense. And then, and then last night the work started yeah. to begin and these yeah. different, you know, memories and things like that started to happen. Uh, but it wasn't, um, there wasn't a lot of pain or resistance, even though there were moments in which I was really grieving and experiencing sure. some of the hurt that I've held and, um, and gone through, but it was like a pleasurable processing of it. It yeah, wasn't like, oh, oh my God, don't look there. It's hurting me again. It's like, yeah. no, it's not hurting me again. I'm just actually letting go of the hurt. Yeah, exactly. That's so it's beautiful. Cool. But listening to some of the people in the room, I'm like, yeah, oh God, that's gotta it, be rough, They're going dude. Through it. Like if you've never yeah. faced yourself or, you know, been so fortunate as me to have an acute addiction that made me force myself yeah. and learn how to meditate and all that stuff. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> and I had so much reverence for the people that were having that much more yeah. intense experience. There's totally. one woman here that she's here with her daughter. And um, I said, how's your mom doing? Because she, she looked a little distraught one day. And uh, she said, well, she's hanging in there. She's um, 77 years old. And I said, so she's never done any psychedelics. No, my mom's never even smoked weed before. Yeah, yeah. And she had the courage to come here and go we through this. We get that this. all the time. Dude. And we, we've had people in their 90s here. Really? Yeah, they've never done anything. Oh my God. And they love it. They do great. We'll be right back at you after this brief but important announcement. Yo, I am super pumped to share with you beekeepersnaturals.com. Now, if you heard episode 175 with founder and CEO Carly Stein, you know exactly what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about are the highest quality bee products in the world from Beekeepers Naturals. Now, I've been using bee products for a long time. Back in the 90s, I was rocking like the bee pollen and And, you know, using kind of gourmet honey over the years and things like that. But until that interview, honestly, I had no idea of the superpowers and the variety of different bee products. So not only do these guys make the cleanest, most organic, most potent bee products, they also have the widest variety of products. So whether it's propolis, which helps you with the immune system, um, soothing scratchy throats, it's really potent stuff, or the bee pollen, which is a superfood with vitamins and nutrients and gives you energy. It has amino acids and protein, whether it's the raw honey, the royal jelly. Uh, they even have a tonic for your brain. I mean, they have a lot of great products over there. So if you're not hip to the power of bee products as a superfood, I want to highly recommend that you get over to beekeepersnaturals.com. And honestly, if you want to just learn all about bees in the industry and how it's done and how it's done right for ecology and for the environment, definitely go back and listen to episode 175. It's a, it's a great episode and the founder Carly is just brilliant and she's running a really great operation over there. So I'm very happy to support them on the show. And uh, like all the stuff I always talk about, I use them every day. In fact, I use it too much because I run out of it. Like when I interviewed her, I was like, so I do like a couple tablespoons of the bee powered, which is the really potent one that combines all of the superfoods in the hive into one product. She's like, dude, the dose for that is half a teaspoon once a day. You're tripping. But, you know, I'm hardcore Uh, because it just tastes delicious and it gives you like instant energy. So definitely get over to beekeepersnaturals.com. When you're there, if you enter the code LIFESTYLIST, that's one word, LIFESTYLIST, you'll save 15% off your order. So go to beekeepersnaturals.com, enter the code LIFESTYLIST. All right, folks, I'm about to bust out one of my secrets here. You ready for this? 
people often wonder how I'm able to record sometimes three or four podcasts in one day and stream them all on social media and do all of the crazy things I do. If you follow me on Instagram, uh, my life is quite busy and somehow I managed to keep it together. Well, my secret weapon, or at least one of them, is the Four Sigmatic Lion's Mane Coffee. Now, I don't always have time to brew up some whole beans, put them in the French press, put the butter in there, do the whole thing, make myself that fatty kind of elixir. But what I do always have time for is to bust out one of the little lion's mane coffee packets from Four Sigmatic, throw that in some hot water, even sometimes when I'm like in a rush and just need to make things happen, some cold water, shake it up, stir it up, blend it up, and I'm good to go. Now, what's cool about a lion's mane coffee is that it's an instant coffee but it doesn't have any of the toxins of like your grandma's like Folgers instant coffee by the way don't ever eat that stuff super super toxic (laughs) instant coffees are generally really bad for you but not this one what's really cool about the four sigmatic instant coffee is that you've get you get like a a balanced stimulation so it's coffee without the jitters the lion's mane sort of calms down the hit of caffeine so that's why i really like this product um, this has been used for a long time by Buddhist monks to help with focus during meditation. And this is just a beautiful mushroom and a modern day favorite for someone like me who likes to get creative, but also stay focused. And all of Four Sigmatic's mushrooms are dual extracted, meaning that you get the water soluble and fat soluble nutrients. And in non-geeky terms, that just means that they're really badass and that they do it right. So if you want to check it out, which I highly recommend you do, here's what's up. You go to foursigmatic.com forward slash Luke story. Again, that's foursigmatic.com forward slash Luke story. If you throw some of that Lion's Mane coffee in your shopping cart and then enter the code Luke story, you're also going to save 15% off. That's foursigmatic.com forward slash Luke story. Your discount code is also Luke story. Enjoy. And now back to the interview. The funny thing about this particular woman, I didn't get a report last night, but the daughter told me the first two nights she slept through the whole thing. <laughs> and I thought, because I heard someone snoring it last night, I figured out it was her. I think she slept a bit last night, but I was having the realization that um, the medicine is intelligent enough. Whatever the energy is behind this thing, I don't try to figure it out. I just know there's something there. Knew that for her, that's how the work was going to be done. That's right. Not consciously, but as yep. she's sleeping, her shit's being Definitely. rewired, as you said. These For parts sure. of the brain being healed and the neurotransmitters mm-hmm. being balanced and all that mm-hmm. is happening even though she has no cognitive experience of it. Yeah, exactly. I My first few ayahuasca ceremonies were like that. I just really? fell asleep. No way. Yeah. I was totally scared. Maybe that's why. I don't know. Yeah. But I was terrified. I had done Iboga a bunch. I was scared to do ayahuasca. Go figure. Maybe I have mom issues or something. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Which I love my mom. But uh, so I fell asleep and it was still super cool because I don't know I'm like, what happened. And like, I don't know, but I feel great. You know, it, it worked on me. It definitely does that. How many uh, ceremonies have you done at this point? I've done close to 60. And I haven't done it in a while. I haven't done it in almost two years because I'm on call for all these ceremonies here. Every right. night. Right. So it'd be a little weird if the chief medical officer is up there drinking medicine and everybody's like, wait, isn't this the guy kind of supervising <laughs> this place? It wouldn't be too cool. So, and by the way, I'm very rarely, if ever, needed up there. Yeah. Because everything's totally cool and the staff are awesome. There's a ton of people there. Oh, the team of 
the team of uh, magicians and wizards in the ceremony is insane, especially last night. They're, yeah. they're like a band too. All of a sudden yeah. they're, I was like, what is this music? Cause you can't tell really where sounds coming from <laughs> yeah. under the medicine. Yeah. And so I like leaned over and I was right in front. My mattress was right in front of the, the little shaman stand and where the medicine is served. And I, I leaned over, I was like, those are them. <laughs> you know, everyone had gathered around with all their drums and guitars and they're chanting and singing. It, it was angelic. It That's was so, so beautiful. Cool. Wait till tonight. It's even better. Really? There's a live band tonight, all Colombian style music. No way. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was, uh, God. It was insane. You know what I was going to say too about your like, uh, when you were mentioning about like relationships and connecting and, and all that. Yeah. What I've been able to see in my career and mostly here, it's like, if we're not plugged into ourselves, we can't really plug into somebody else. It's kind of like, it's forced or, or it, we can do it a little bit, but it's not true connection with other people. If, I, if I'm unplugged from myself, they're getting sort of a, a different version of who I really am. Because I'm not really open or authentic or being vulnerable. But if I'm plugged into myself, I can be vulnerable if I've resolved my fears and my traumas and whatever. And I can be cool with who I am. And that's where I can open up and I can connect and plug into people. And they can do the same. So it's something that we see here all the time. We see people show up, they're like kind of loners and sort of rigid. And by the time they leave, every single person here is, is a, their friend. And they're in Facebook groups together and they stay, they come back for a reunion a year later. I mean, it completely changes the way people view social and just any sort of relationship with, with people. It's very, very cool. You know, it connects you. That's interesting. So if you're someone who has processed your trauma uh, by having limits on your capacity for intimacy and connection with other people, once that traumas healed at a core soul level, then you lose the fear of being hurt again because you feel that sense of safety, security, and wholeness. Exactly. And therefore you can allow your heart to be open to someone and share your truth with them. That's right. Without feeling like you're going to fucking... Like for me, it's like... I Specifically, I think in romantic relationships, there's just elements of myself. I'm like, I'm not talking about that. Like <laughs> yeah. I don't want them to know... How fucked up I really am, or whatever you know, whatever <laughs> yeah, yeah. quirks or sure. shit that I have. It's like, oh, if they knew that, they would surely abandon me. Yeah, yeah. And I've become increasingly courageous about just being me and doing me, even yeah. in the podcast and social media and yeah. stuff. I mean, the past two years, I've given fewer fucks than I ever have in my life yeah, nice. about what people think and all <laughs> yeah. that, uh, because the people that abandon you aren't supposed to be there anyway. If That's they right. find out who you are, they're you're not a good match That's as a friend right. or, yeah. or otherwise. <laughs> but still, you know, uh, at this point still feel a little bit afraid to sure. fully you know, let people in and, and really be seen. I always tell people in that state when they're here, because they're all similar vibe. Like, uh, you know, I feel like I want to, but I'm still scared kind of thing. I said, okay, just go slow. Just test it. Test it with some people you already know. You know, get closer to your buddy or your partner or your family, whatever. Test it like that and just build confidence in it. It's hard to go from zero to a hundred in one day, right? So uh, you have the awareness now. You have the you're plugged in. You can you feel safe. You know who you are. Now you can test it and just build confidence. And there's some behavioral component to that. So test it out. I always tell people that. In terms of people that have had uh, severe, you know, mental issues and um, 
you know, clinically diagnosed with, mm-hmm. you know, bipolar and mm-hmm. manic and all this kind of stuff. Uh, what type of uh, turnarounds have you witnessed in your time working with plant medicine? Incredible ones for depression, anxiety, PTSD, all the personality disorders, which are the axis, used to be called the axis two disorders, like borderline personality disorder, narcissistic, all those, there's 13 of them. Um, now, bipolar is interesting because there's bipolar one and bipolar two. Um, bipolar one is per, for for various medical reasons is pretty complicated with with ayahuasca, but um, when somebody presents with this diagnosis, we we can work with them and talk it through with them and kind of figure out stuff. And often those people are on psychotropic medication that they have to be off of. So if they're severe, you know, back home, coming off their meds is is you know not necessarily a great thing for them. Uh, and they have to really work with their doctor to see if that's even doable. You know, and some for some it is, and it has been. But what I love are the Axis 2, the old Axis 2 disorders, because people, the medical world believes that those are not curable. You cannot cure borderline personality disorder. It's who you are. It's called egocentonic, meaning just who you are. It's part of you. You view the world differently than everybody else does. And you feel that, you know, kicking that dog over there was justified because the dog needed a kick <laughs> where, where everybody else would just be like, dude, are you nuts? The dog's harmless. What are you doing? But, but people with borderline and access to in particular have this belief. And that's a result of being completely unplugged from themselves emotionally in a way that's authentic with them, which is perfect for ayahuasca. It resolves it. So people, we've had a lot of people with borderline personality disorder come here. And in the West, and especially in LA, people that have present with borderline get referred out. And nobody wants to deal with them. Because they're so difficult? They're so difficult. And the Board of Psychology in California recommends, if you're a clinician, don't have more than two in your practice. Wow, damn. <laughs> you know, guess how many I had? How many? 14. Whoa. Because I was good with them. Because I respected their process right. and respected them as people. And it was not easy. <laughs> but I was already sort of in that zone to work with that particular disorder. So I would get all the referrals from all over LA of the borderline guests or people. And I, w- I would work with other clinicians that do dialectic behavioral therapy groups and stuff like that. So there was a b- bunch of people involved, but I was like the primary clinician for a lot of these people. What I've seen here with that particular disorder, quote unquote disorder, isn't a miracle. They, they report having none of the emotional deregulation that they reported on, ha- on arriving. They've completely changed. And they're aware of who they are and they're plugged in and their symptoms go out the door. Now their behavior has to change. They have to actually put into practice the new vibe, right? And that's where, you know, that's a challenge, but that's just life. I have new awareness. I got to use it now. You know, but that emotional part of confusion and chaos that's leading me to kind of like be unplugged and unstable, that part's gone. It's incredible. Depression and anxiety are also really good to work here because that's about neurochemistry often. Dopamine, serotonin, out of balance. High serotonin, usually anxiety. Low dopamine, usually depression. Now, there's other, there's other reasons for it, for those disorders, but those are usually two things that are happening. And people don't know if they have low dopamine. <laughs> the test for neurochemistry is a urine test, but it's like, it's not, it's, it's like you have to, you'd have to do like a series of like a hundred urine tests over like a week to really see the, actually what's going on. 
because you know neurochemistry is surging and retracting all every millisecond. Right. So it's impossible to like know. Oh, that's that. interesting. You don't, yeah, you can't really you track a trend unless you're just continually monitoring. You know, what would be interesting in the future, and I'm I'm, I'm sure this is online somewhere uh, to come, is where you know you have like a blood glucose monitor. You yeah, can, you know, you can stick into your skin. I've yeah. done that, and you yeah. you see the different things you eat and your yeah. behavior and how that affects your and that's, glucose that's, levels. And that's accurate. That particular thing, right? But yeah. imagine that for neurotransmitters. He's you know, there's cool. a little plug you put in the back of your head or something. You're like, oh shit! When that I watch that coming. horror movie, my dopamine tanked. <laughs> Note to self: no more horror movies. I want to get a little more information from you about what the medicine is actually doing to your brain. You know, you you mentioned you know the repairing the amygdala, this and that. I want to get a little more sciency on it, cool, uh, because. <laughs> Each night I've done it so far, I've had multiple experiences where there's this hmm, kind of energy or entity or something that is very kind of sci-fi and mm. ET related. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's just no other way to say it. It probably sounds yeah. crazy. And people are like, eh, I'm done with this podcast. This guy's fucking nuts. <laughs> it just is what it is, dude. And, there's themes of that for lots of people. And what I've, I've heard that <laughs> and what I've experienced is... Like I feel like my brain is being fixed and worked on. It's yeah. like I'm being scanned and there's lights and all sorts of shit happening. And I'm just allowing it and saying, okay, do your thing. Like fix my brain. It definitely needs it. Yeah. Uh, but I feel things moving in there and juices flowing. Mm-hmm. And it's like, whoa, something is happening in my brain. So, you know, that's more on the on the esoteric end of it where it's mm-hmm. just this energetic thing. But what do we know scientifically that's verifiable that's actually happening mm-hmm. under the influence? So just to like preface that, it's like in vivo brain studies, right, are really difficult to do. So most brain studies, what we know mostly about the brain is done from cadaver work, you know, and then that's not that's not very helpful for like certain electrical processes and things that they're trying to figure out in the brain. So the brain is particularly difficult to study because of that. You, can't, you don't want to cut somebody's head open and while they're alive and start messing with their brain. It's just too volatile, right? But there's been MRIs done when there's people on plant medicine and what it looks like and what the kind of the electrical charges are doing a little differently. And um, now the, the thing that I find the most fascinating is the DMT component. So DMT is produced naturally by every living thing in different quantities, so mammals have it, plants have it, people have it, we all have it, right? And what DMT is, is kind of unknown to science. They, they think, uh, well, the pineal gland is something that's not very relevant. And it's kind of like through evolution, it's becoming less important. And now it's almost gone. It's kind of like some science's belief about the pineal gland. And DMT comes from the pineal gland. And what other scientists believe is that, it was always mixed opinions. They believe that that molecule is our intuition and our connection to things. And if you ever kind of have this rendezvous, or what is it? Uh, not rendezvous, what's that? Uh, you've been there before? You feel like you've been Deja there? Vu. Deja vu. Yeah. So it's like that. And uh, just kind of the whole vibe of like, I knew what you were going to say before you said it kind of thing. Like that whole sort of zone that we can, we've all had before with things. Yeah, or you're you're about to call someone or text someone and instantly in that moment they text you all that. Exactly. Yeah. And so everybody would just say, oh, it's just chance. But what's a lot of part of science believes is that's our ability to connect to energy fields and to other people's energy 
and to kind of have intentions, things that are actually thoughts that can travel. And so there's all this kind of quantum physics stuff to this. But if DMT is that molecule that creates that naturally in us, right? And there's a, a high level of DMT when a person is dying, as they die. DMT floods the body when someone's just about to die. No, forget plant medicine. It's just the body will kick that out. And that's what transports, in theory, right? The spirit or whatever. Wow. And helps them go peaceably, I guess is yeah. the best way to say yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So, so if you're taking in an extra amount of DMT through ayahuasca, which is the active ingredient, you're going to have even more of a connection to things, to the universe, to energy fields, to yourself. And that whole thing about like getting healed and sort of like an operation happening. I don't know the answer to that, but I've had it happen to me. And most people that I know that come here have it happen to some degree. And I think it's, uh, it, it's two things potentially. I think one of it is that if I'm plugged into myself completely, I can heal my body. Like our bodies are the best healing mechanisms there are. Forget science and medicine and da, da, da. I, I can heal myself if I'm connected to myself. So that's one thing that's probably going on. But then there's this other thing that's hard to explain. Aliens or whatever, right? And I don't know what that's about. But I just know this. People that have those experiences report being healed afterwards. And they're not still sick with whatever they had. You know, and that's what they're telling us, you know, as we follow up with them six months, six months, nine months, one year later, they're still healed from whatever it is they're working on. It can be simple things too, like a rotator cuff, you know, whatever. It, it can be anything. So the science behind, you know, this plant medicine thing, right, is, is basically based in synaptic plasticity, which is the ability of the brain to morph and change. Back in the old school days of neurobiology, they thought the brain was rigid. It was just set in stone after a certain age. And there's nothing you can do. It doesn't change. That's been debunked. And we know the brain changes all the time. It builds new neuron pathways. One's branch off. One's fade. New electrical impulses can go down this path. Your body, your brain can morph. And so that's what's going on with plant medicine. It's creating a synaptic plasticity moment, especially with that part of the amygdala right? Where the neurochemistry is like, so basically what, what the amygdala has going on, there's these roads of neurons and it's an event of pain or fear, scared or some messed up thing. And on that thing is an emotion firing too. There's emotion connected to that pathway and it's firing and stuff. And so that's, what's influencing our, our normal life. But if you can open up the barrier the intellectual barrier between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex, you can, the prefrontal cortex can basically look and go, oh, let's take this pathway and get that emotion out of it. And then we'll just move this pathway over here so that dogs aren't scary. Dogs are really cool. And I want one as a pet. I'll just shift it over here. And then dogs are loved. Dogs are nice. Dogs are sweet. Not the old way when I was a kid, got bit by one. Dogs are mean and I hate dogs and I'm scared. It changes. So there's a neuron pathway shift and new neurons building and connecting. And that's how the brain's adjusting during plant medicine. And that's basically how it's going on scientifically. Dude, so that's what I'm feeling when I feel that... Yes. Like these fucking... Yeah. I just don't, I just, I can't, words are so weak when it comes to trying to describe these experiences. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's like I'm sitting there watching my brain get this sort of psychic surgery. And yeah. that it... You know, based on what you said on the, the scientific basis, 
that must explain what's what's happening in there. Correct. It's so interesting. It's just it's beyond fascinating that it that's is. even possible. In terms of the structure of the brain, so we have the amygdala and say, you know, you're a kid and you know, you get beaten or abused or whatever, then does the amygdala then get injured in a sense? Not not so much injured. It just gets it just it starts it's like a database. It's just collecting okay. data. Okay. These type of kids or this type of playground or this type of day, time of day is dangerous. It's it's for survival. Okay, so yeah, so here we go. You mentioned the dog thing. Yeah. I, I kind of forgot about this because I've healed my relationships with the canine. Nice, and now I have one. Cool. Cookie, she's amazing. She's my co-host <laughs> normally when I'm recording at home. Uh, but as a kid, I was um, attacked by a German Shepherd. I have a uh, big hole in my thigh. That's and, pretty scary. <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah, big fucking German Shepherd it took a chunk out of me. And then my dad used to have this stupid dog named Sister. It was like a herding dog, a sheep herding dog. Those could be rough too. They used to chase me up and down the driveway to the bus stop and just bite at me and nip at me. I didn't know it was trying to herd me. I thought it was trying to kill me. That went on for years. Yeah. You know, and I was, I probably have a little like grudge on my dad for not getting rid of the fucking dog. Like he chose the dog over me because he he knew I was terrified. But to him, he's like, dude, it's not going to hurt you. Chill. Yeah. You know? Uh, And then really my, one of the most spiritual experiences of my life was getting bit on the face by a Rottweiler. Oh, wow. You've had all kinds of rough yeah, things with dogs. Yeah. And um, yeah, it took, you know, just like gripped my whole face in its mouth, a giant uh, Rottweiler. I was drunk and being a dumbass and like uh, slapping it on the back. It didn't like that. Yeah. Anyway, that eventually led to me getting uh, $7,000 in a lawsuit, which led to me having enough money to buy all the heroin I could ever want, which oh, led no. me to hitting the most horrific bottom ever, which led me to rehab. Uh, the dog helped me find God. So wow. The irony in that That's dog God, right? That's very cool. Wow. Yeah, so so I'm very grateful to those big mean dogs because in a weird sort of way, it led me to this moment right here sitting with you and yeah. being on this journey of healing and spiritual exploration. That said, because I've had those experiences, so that was then um, registered in the amygdala and my entire life up until, I still get a little bit, but when a dog is barking, I get this surge of adrenaline and cortisol. Yeah, uh-huh. I'm just like, I become flooded and pissed and annoyed or scared. Yeah. Uh, so when the amygdala is triggered by an experience or memory like that, what happens chemically? Is it the hypothalamus or the, what's the other one? The hippocampus? Uh-huh. Or yeah, they're all it, involved. Is, are, do those then get signaled to release all these hormones and yes. shit to uh-huh. fucking make you run or hide? And Absolutely. Is that how that works? That's how that works. If you think about it, like bring it back to caveman times, if if there's a freaking saber-toothed tiger chasing some dude, he's got to know that that's not going to work. And he has to run and hide and, and he's got adrenaline surging, right, to be able to survive. So that's what that is. It's like a primitive impulse and it's an instinctive thing that we have as human beings. Dogs were scaring you and biting you and trying to eat you and you had that response and that was for survival, right? So it got, it got like burned into your brain, you know, something to stay alive. And so here we are later in life. And as I said, I'm not that triggered, but still it happens sometimes. It's sure. just more annoyed. Like when a little yappy dog barks, including <laughs> mine from time to time, it just irritates me. It's hard for yeah. me to just be chill with that. But I don't get as afraid as I once did. So That's good. Because so, what happens now, right, is like, let's say, even though you've already been cool with dogs, but let's say you weren't yet until you got here. Yeah. Let's say. Um, so what would happen then on the plant medicine is that you would see like why you were scared of those dogs because it all makes sense. One's biting you in the face, one's nipping at your ankles and one's 
biting your leg off. So it all makes sense why you were scared. It's not a mystery. So you would see that that's, that that's viable and okay. And then, but that's not your present day thing. So you can just like, so it just goes. It's like that. Well, I'm not, I'm not slapping a Rottweiler on the back anymore. I'm not doing that. I'm not a, a little kid with a German shepherd on me. Now I want to have a nice fun dog and the dogs are totally mean something nice to me now. And it just changes and shifts the way you feel about the whole event. And so you still have that memory. The memories are still there. It was scary. It wasn't cool. And that's okay. But as long as that memory isn't influencing you now, and it's not because you've let it go, you've released it, right? So that's an analogy for all kinds of things. You're with relationships too. Like if you were abused and hurt and treated poorly, you know, your whole developmental years, and now you're an adult and relationships are just suck because you picked the wrong people and they're abusive too, or they leave you or whatever. Of course, because that's your, that's your, understanding of yourself and others because it's burned in from that young age time. So now it's, it's resolved, let's say, right? You've worked it through and now you can do it. Now you can connect with people. Now you know that's just a person. And if they leave you, who cares? Like that's their freaking bad, right? It doesn't wound you mortally like it would when you were five. Right. And would you say with something like going back to the the, the dog example and the, the triggering aftershocks of that, say one is in ceremony and they don't particularly in a cognitive sense touch on that trauma and sort of like last night, there was a number of different experiences that I went back to and I allowed myself to work through them and recontextualize them and heal from them. But I was conscious that that was a topic that I was kind of working on, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm hoping that as you say, that I have the net effect of healing that and not having it be an issue anymore. But say in my experience over the past three nights that the dog thing didn't come up for me at all and that Mm -hmm. still was an issue. Yeah. Do things still get healed without you being taken, you know, through Uh your awareness to that event? Uh Uh-huh. Yes. And the way they the way they do that is you might hear some people the next day after a ceremony say, I'm I'm really confused. Like I had all these weird nonsensical images or or thoughts that were super chaotic and didn't make any sense, or I saw these weird figures or whatever they say, and it's like none of it made none of it was relevant to my mom or my parents or the things I wanted to work on. And then I just go, okay, how did you feel when you were having that sort of experience that night that was confusing? Well, I was angry because I wasn't getting like what I'm here for, and I was scared a lot because that those weird things I saw was just bizarre. And I was, uh, not, I didn't trust anybody here at Rhythmia because I'm doing this and you guys don't know what you're doing. I said, ah, sounds like your parents. <laughs> right, right, right. Funny. <laughs> Angry, scared, and don't trust them. I'm like, that's what happened. You got what you wanted. But because of your own personality or because of your own openness or not or whatever, everybody's different. These things came up as representations of what your intentions are. And it's the emotional thing that's relevant. It's not always like what you see. I mean, it can be. If you see a snake like going, I mean, cool, that's a snake, but what does it represent emotionally, right? And that's where the healing is. Then they kind of go, oh, duh, and they feel it. And then they, they change their whole view. So it can definitely work on things without you having to have that sort of conscious awareness. Okay, well, now I like dogs because I saw the dog and now I, you know, it doesn't, it's not always as linear as that. Ah, right, right. Yeah, I think, 
that makes sense because as I said, in the first two nights, there was very little thought activity or words mm-hmm. or talking to myself, to God, to the medicine. It was just, as I said, just having that experience. But it was during those experiences when I think I felt the most sensation of things being rewired, Yeah, even though I was having no association to an event or a trauma. It was just mm-hmm. like, hmm, okay, something's happening to me here. There's yeah. some sort of surgical energetic procedure taking place and I'm allowing it to take place uh, with full willingness and permission. But then, you know, last night there were very specific things that I was guided into to work on. So that's, that's reassuring to know Mm -hmm. that that is, that is possible. Um, God, there's, there's, you know, we're probably about ready to wrap it up here. Um, this we is could just, talk forever, huh? Yeah, could, dude. dude it's, this is awesome. It's just, it's, it's deep. <laughs> it it's is deep. It and is. I, it's, you know, there's so many things I've discovered um, in the spiritual realms and also in health. You know, I'm really into physical health and having your vessel be strong and yep. vibrant and have longevity and vitality so that you can do this kind of work. Um, but this one here, I feel like is a Columbus moment for me. I'm going like, whoa, I just stumbled on something really, really <laughs> effective and powerful. That's nice. the sense I get. And, and of course, I'm excited because I'm in the middle of it. We'll see how I process when I get home. And yeah. I'm, I'm assuming it will be profound as it, it will seems be. now. Uh, you have a good, and you have a good support network back home. I do. Which is key. I do. That's huge. Yeah. Some of these guys come from Sandusky, Ohio. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've met a few people here and they're like, my whole family thinks I'm crazy. No one's done anything like this. I mean, you know, my tribe back home, uh, I think especially with my friends that are in recovery, no no one gave me any shit or anything, but they're yeah. kind of like, whoa, dude, really? You're doing what? Yeah. And I just, I know what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, I just, Perfect. I, don't, I don't, I don't, I really don't care what anyone thinks. Yeah, I, that's good. I, I know when I'm guided into something, but. Uh, I've discovered things in the health realm that are revolutionary. You know, this device called the amp coil that I've used quite a bit and it, it heals Lyme disease. And I mean, it's like nice. these things that I discover, um, there's a something in your body called deuterium, which is this heavy hydrogen that yep. destroys your ability to, or, you know, doesn't destroy, but lessens your ability to produce ATP because it yeah. breaks the nanomotors in your mitochondria uh-huh. and it's in our food and in our water and environment. Yeah. Once you hit a certain load of deuterium, your body loses the ability to deplete it naturally. And so I did like a six-hour podcast just on that one thing. Wow. Cool. I went through the protocol, did it to myself, um, have an amazing abundance of energy now having done that. That's awesome. So, you know, I feel like, oh my God, this is like the best <laughs> discovery to share with people. And that's yeah. kind of what this feels like. Very I feel cool. very late to the party in a sense. <laughs> you're not at all. You're, you're, not, you're not late to the party. I'm telling you, this is just beginning. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. The, the other thing is I'm, as enjoyable as most of the experiences have been, I really don't like the way I feel after. No, of course. It's been a I lot mean, of work. You're exhausted. Oh, dude. And I just, I'm not, I don't want to throw up, but kind of nauseous. And I feel yeah. almost like drunk. It's, I can't really walk yeah. right. And I'm just like, God, I just want this to end now. Mm-hmm. And difficult to sleep a bit, feel yeah. kind of amped, you know? And um, so it's, it's funny because with drugs that just have a net effect of euphoria, typically, historically I've been like, oh, I can't wait to do that shit again. I'm going to wake up tomorrow morning and do more. This is kind of like, oh, do I want to do that again? Exactly. I'm like, every time I walk (laughs) up the hill to the room, I'm like, oh God. (laughs) Here we go Am I going to puke, you know? And, uh, But then when I'm in it, I'm thinking, hmm, how deep is this well? Like how many times am I going to explore this? And how how many is necessary to reach the point where I feel healed enough you know um, we, we did jerry tell you his his philosophy or our, our philosophy about that no 
we believe like yes, we have these three intentions that we kind of say if you do these three while you're here, you'll get everything that you're asking for, right? Sure. Which is um, show me who I become, uh, reunite me with my soul, and heal my heart. And we believe those are three kind of catch-all intentions. And when people do that, then they're they got what's called their miracle, meaning they got their result that they wanted, their goal. And we we've our belief is that you can do that three times. Three, three, three in a in your life, you know? And so that would be what? Like nine ceremonies if you got one each one. Or like let's say let's say you do the whole three in a week. So that's like four, 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 whatever, you know, but you can do that deeper thing three times. And then you're good. Then you're like you're set, you know. And some people get everything they need with one ceremony. You know, we've seen that too. And but there's always, like you said, there's always these deeper levels, right? And there's this deep, deeper thing. So it just really depends on the person, I believe. But what we've been told and what we've seen in, in our own kind of 4,000 people plus come through here, work with these shaman and stuff, is it? It's, it's nine times, like three, 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 nine of these intentions. So meaning like three, uh, three times the four ceremony block? Yeah, that's a, that's a better way to say it, yes. So, okay. So let's say if you're here for a week and you have those yeah. three intentions and you yeah. got all three. Yeah. You can do that again two more times. Got it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Three rounds. Yeah. It's the kind of thing like I sort of don't look forward to doing it of again. Of course. You know, it's just like, oh, no, it's God. Brutal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I'm not even, I mean, like I said, some people <laughs> in there are having a rough time. I'm yeah. laughing my ass off. Yeah. I'm crying. I'm laughing. I'm, I'm good. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm like, oh, man, it's, I hope I don't yeah. have to do this too many times to get what I, you know, um, desire. That's, that's the thing. Like, if you look at the Western medical model, therapeutic model, it's like, okay, let's go. It's slow. It's slow. It's slow. And it's like kind of just working on things slow. And it's usually, okay, oh, I can do that. But you hear it's a week. It's 20 years of therapy in a week. So there's a lot going on. It's not easy. Yeah. It's work. It's hardcore work. Yeah. It definitely seems that way. I'm, I'm so curious to see how this is going to unfold and, and how it'll integrate because... Um, one thing I noticed, which is funny, I don't know when this occurred to me, maybe yesterday. Since I've been here, I haven't bitten my fingernails. Yeah, well, that's anxiety usually. Yeah. Right? So you're just releasing yeah. all that. Kind as soon of as stuff. I quit smoking a number of years ago, I used to bite my nails as a kid, just chronically to like bled, you know? And, um, but then when I smoked, I don't bite my fingernails. And then every time I quit smoking, I start biting my fingernails. It's always one or the other, you yeah. know, just some sort of <laughs> manual, habitual thing. But uh, yeah, yesterday I was like, weird. I don't, I'm, I haven't been picking my nails, you know, I'm always like picking at them and yeah. this nervous energy. Yeah. It's really interesting uh -huh. to see that. So I'm wondering, cool. hmm, what other <laughs> habitual coping mechanisms are going to, to fall away? Yeah. Albeit, you know, that's a subtle one, but sure, uh, I'm sure there's a, a multitude of ways in which I'm, avoiding feeling or avoiding an yeah. uncomfortable state of uh, experience for sure so wow dude well i think that just you know there's no way to wrap it up but i think that's yeah. a good kind of ending point i think we've covered yeah i think so what my heart desired to cover here and i appreciate your expertise and your point of view and the fact that we really got to dig into the addiction piece and the mental health piece mm -hmm. because man that's the stuff i see people really suffer from yeah me too and you know like i said just about everyone i know has had some degree of trauma 
Yep. And I'm resisting the temptation to like message all my friends, sign up, you got to come here, you got to <laughs> yeah. come here. You know, I'm like, I don't want to play God or proselytize. Yeah. It's, if no someone, good. you know, someone asked me, cool, I'll, I'll share sure. and say, you know, I was thinking, because I've thought about so many people in ceremony. Of like, course. Oh man, God, if I could just, I mean, people I haven't talked to for years and I just see their pattern that we've been discussing and go, oh my God, they, they have no idea that there's a possibility to heal that. You know, they don't know people that even haven't done any work or yeah. people that have tried everything and tried yeah. everything and they're still not really fundamentally changed. Exactly. Um, Your vibe alone will be communication enough to the people that you know. They'll just sense it. Yeah, it's interesting. A few people here um, have said to me, uh, actually, every day since the first ceremony, oh my God, you look so different. Your vibe yeah. was like kind of, <laughs> and I was, you know, I almost took offense a little. They were like, your vibe was kind of dark. And what? yeah, no. yeah. And I was like, what? I'm Mr. Love. What are you talking about? I'll tell you what it was, dude. It wasn't dark. It was, it was, I'm, I'm speculating because I yeah. didn't see you when you first got here. It's just coming from LA, man. It's freaking right. hardcore there, dude. Yeah, it the, is. The smog, the traffic. The rat race vibe that, you know, you're not necessarily in that rat race vibe, but you're around it all the time. Yeah. There's a lot of really, I'm from LA, so yeah. I love, I love LA, right? But it's a rough place because there's just a lot of people there. And you just had that on your, on your countenance, right? Just that stress or whatever it was. And that's probably what they're talking about. Not being dark. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was just, you know, I was like, okay, I think this is, a, it's like a backhanded compliment. You look like such a dick the first day. And now I kind of like you, you know, that's the way my brain heard it. But uh, also the, the, the couple of people that said that to me, we met at the airport when I landed and uh, there was a traffic jam. And so the, the driver from here that was driving the shuttle was uh, considerably late. late. Oh, and so yeah. I arrived, I didn't know, th- I thought I was the only guy going to Rhythmia. Uh, yeah. My phone doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't panic, but it's it sure. definitely wasn't an ideal scenario. Of course. I breathed through it and, you know, it'll work out. It's fine. But after a long flight, it's a bit annoying. Big time. And um, so I met the other, there was four people coming here also that night. And I was like, what the fuck? Where's the driver? You know, so, no wonder they kind of perceived me as being a bit uptight uh, in that context. Um, so, yeah, probably a number of different things. But anyway, dude. We thanks. see everybody shift here. Yeah. It's incredible place to work, man. I bet. Yeah. I bet. So I have a feeling you're probably going to stick around here a bit and keep doing what you're doing, huh? I can't go back to the old way. Right. (laughs) Right. Can you imagine sitting and like doing talk therapy with someone for 20 years? No way. I mean, look at Jerry. You worked with his ass for years. He couldn't couldn't even get sober, let alone have a change of character, (laughs) you know? The tools of of my practice or my whatever career are... Not good for the people I work with. Got it. So, yeah, I like that's a great way to state it. It might be good for others and others. Absolutely. It's not to write it off. Of course. Yeah. And a lot of people benefit greatly from talk therapy. And I've had some people also benefit, but this works. And this is my vibe now. And this is what I'm doing. Yeah. I find talk therapy uh, handy, not so much to like do the deep work, but if I'm just perplexed by something to get, you know, to get another point of view. Yeah, it is good for that. There's a conflict in business or relationships. Say, hey man, here's what's going on. Okay, they did this. I said this. We got to do this. What do you think? And have someone go, oh, hey, did you look at it from this perspective? It is good for that. You know, that objectivity that comes with speaking with someone uh, about the issues in your life. Yeah. And having them be able to have more clarity than you do because they're not emotionally involved in the outcome. And, yeah. You know, they're not triggered by the shit you're triggered by in that exactly. moment. Exactly. It is good for that. Absolutely. Yeah. So. yeah. But definitely, um, I've not found a lot of lasting major transformation like I have the feeling that um, I'm getting here. 
So thank you so much for doing the work you do. Thank Pura you. For, vida. Yeah, thank you for sharing, you know, your wisdom and experience with us. One thing I like to ask each and every guest, I think I've gotten every one out of a couple hundred now, is um, who have been three teachers or teachings in your life that have influenced you, your work, your evolution that you might be able to share with the audience for them to go research and explore? Well, it's going to be very unorthodox when I tell you right now. They always are, dude. You'd be surprised. <laughs> Henry Rollins. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. LA guy, old uh, black flag. That's right. Fan. Yes. Ice tea. <laughs> okay. And the reason for ice tea is because he, I went to a lecture of his when I was in college and he said, don't fight the system, you dumb white males. If you don't like the system, get up into the highest ranks of the system and go off like a time bomb and then change the program. I was like, oh, you're right. So that's what I did. Wow. Uh-huh. Wow. And, and the third one? Definitely two curveballs so far. <laughs> Loving it. Who's the third? Malcolm X. Malcolm X. I used to, uh, when I was in high school, I would every summer, because I was a nerd, a surfer nerd, I would go to the library and get as many books as I could find on one subject that I was interested in for the summer. And one year, one summer was Malcolm X. And I read every book I could find about Malcolm X. And I fell in love with the guy about his philosophy. Not necessarily like the black, white thing, but it's more about like just his focus and how he wanted to empower people and how he changed his belief system. that was very rigid and he shifted. He had three major shifts in his life from being kind of like an in, inmate con guy to being like a nation of Islam guy, then to being like a free thinking kind of on his own guy. And those are huge transitions. And I really respect that, you know, about how he did that. So that was just inspiring to me. So those are the three, Henry Rollins, Ice-T and Malcolm X. And why Henry Rollins? <laughs> because when I was 14 years old, I went to Perkins Palace in Pasadena and I saw I had a skateboard there because my mom and dad wouldn't drive me because they didn't want me to go. I skateboarded to Perkins Palace in Pasadena and saw a black flag and I was 14. And it changed my life because of what he would talk about in between songs and about fighting oppression and the system that was existing with Ronald Reagan in there and all this crazy nonsense. And it just like completely showed me what punk rock was about. It wasn't about being stupid and nihilistic and the drug thing. It was about changing what was going on in the world. Wow. Yeah. Cool, man. That's great. <laughs> Three great ones. Now I'm getting, I'm very curious about Malcolm X. I don't know uh, much about his life. I'll have to do a bit of research. So I'm, cool. I'm going to take your suggestions too and uh, follow up on those. All right. Uh, do you have any uh, personal social media or website or anything you want to give a shout yeah. out? Obviously, I'm going to send people to Rhythmia throughout this whole series. Sure. But, um, we just have, you know, I, I just use the, the Rhythmia Facebook page for my Facebook lives. I do oh, every cool. Monday night at 7 p.m. Costa Rica time, which is Central Standard Time. It's like a quick little 10 minute little thing I do. And then um, we have an Instagram account, you know, Rhythmia, you know, Rhythmia Instagram. And it, but mostly, most of our stuff's on Facebook. And we have a website, Rhythmia Life Advancement Center. So cool. Easy to find on the web. Cool. Dude, thank you so much. Thank you. Great conversation. Thanks for having me. Yeah. That concludes our fourth and final interview of this two-part series on my ayahuasca experience. Big ups to Jeff. Uh, without him, the experience would have not have been the same for me. It was really important to create some context around mental health issues, addiction recovery, etc. 
as they relate from a scientific and clinical point of view to plant medicines and healing trauma using them. So this was a really important conversation and also a really fun one. So Jeff, if you ever listen to this, thank you so much, man. You were one of the highlights of my trip. What's going to happen now? Trip, no pun intended, get it? Huh? So many trips. In fact, what's going to happen now, my friends, is we're going to do a couple more field reports and we're going to take this thing home. So what you can hear from this point on are some narration that I did about the third and fourth ceremony a report on uh, a bad accident that happened on my last day and how I managed to escape from that relatively unscathed and how the plant medicines actually helped me to deal with that trauma in real time. Then I do a report from the plane flying home from Costa Rica to Los Angeles. And then finally, I'll do a little summary recap as to where I stand today a couple months later. And I want to encourage you to go back and listen to part one if you missed that. I mean, if you just randomly fell on part two here and you made it through to the end, congratulations. Um, there must have been something interesting here for you. But if you really want the whole story, obviously go back and hear part one, because without that, you're really not getting the full picture. So now I'd like to take you back to the hot, sweaty jungles of Costa Rica, where I do my third and fourth ceremony reports and take us out to the end of this fantastic journey. Tonight is the night of ceremony number four, T-minus 60 minutes until liftoff. And uh, tonight's the night where we go deep, as if we weren't going deep the three other nights. So uh, per usual, I have a little bit of nervous excitement, uh, but I'm really looking forward to the experience tonight because based on everyone who's been through this particular night, uh, which is the Thursday night in the week at Rhythmia, uh, they say that it's absolutely just earth-shattering and beautiful and quite intense. Uh, while the other nights typically run from about 5.30 p.m. to 1, 1.30 a.m., tonight's ceremony goes from 7.30 p.m. until approximately 8.30 or 9 a.m. tomorrow. <laughs> and then tomorrow we've got breath work and all sorts of other stuff uh, to sort of seal the deal, so to speak. So, uh, yeah, I'm sitting in my room. I'm about to meditate and just really get myself rested for the evening ahead. In reflection on last night, there's a couple key takeaways that I think would be worth exploring in this interlude. Uh, a few of them I discussed actually with Jeff, the medical director that I interviewed earlier today. I actually had two interviews, one at the godforsaken hour of 9 a.m. and another one at 10 a.m. And so I got those out of the way, but I didn't really feel I was able to process the full experience last night until about now. Uh, however, when I interviewed Jeff, I did talk about really going into some of the deep trauma in my life and observing the pain and trauma in so many people that I've loved and been in relationship with in my life and just see how so many people are hurt. So I don't want to repeat uh, that part of the experience as it was relevant to that interview and that conversation, which of course came before this, uh, seeing how these tracks uh, are going to end up I believe in chronological order by the time I put all of this content together. That said, uh, last night's experience was much different in that the first serving absolutely just knocked me on my ass in the best sense. And I had much more of a, a visceral experience last night in that I had many more awarenesses and many journeys that I was taken on as I sort of surrendered to the process and the medicine and I just kept asking it to take me where it wanted to take me next in terms of 
memories and, um, and, and things that I needed to process and work on. And there were a lot, a lot more words involved last night, messages delivered to me. Uh, I was asking questions of God, of the medicine uh, that I wanted answers to. Uh, while it wasn't that self-directed, I kept being led sort of into different areas of my life and examining, as I said, relationships. But one of the, the, the big experiences that I had last night, which was very cathartic and healing, and was the first experience in which I actually emoted and really cried. Uh, the other nights I've just yawned a lot and laughed a lot and, uh, and felt a little bit nauseous here and there. But last night, I mean, I had some real deep work going on. And uh, what really brought it on was a moment in which, similar to the first two nights where my, the mind was just completely gone and silent and there was just empty space and my consciousness was just resting within that space. And I was very aware of the fact that the mind had subsided and receded and it was just allowing my soul, my spirit to just be within the context of that dimension that's created or um, allowed by this particular medicine. It's just, it's an astonishing experience to say the least and really hard to put into words. But anyway, in that moment, I realized, oh, this is no mind. You know, you hear that expression in spirituality and in Buddhism, for example, no mind. And I, I asked the question uh, in that moment, oh, is this no mind? And then what came back to me was, no, this is no mind, as in K-N-W, <laughs> wait, K-N-O-W, no, like know the mind, right? And then I was reflecting back on a amazing teacher that I had for many years that just really saved my, my ass. Um, at least, I mean, probably saved my life at a time in my late twenties, uh, through part of my thirties. And, um, and he used to tell me, Luke, you got to see your mind. You got to watch your mind. And I thought, Oh, know the mind. Okay, there we go. And then I had the awareness that it wasn't about knowing the mind as an objective thing apart from me and knowing how it operates and understanding it so much as knowing it as in getting to know it. And in that realization, I became aware that I really needed to introduce myself to my mind and that it was a part of me and it was a necessary part of me and a part of me for which I'm extremely grateful and uh, allows me to do things like do this recording right now and communicate my experiences to people and, and serve in the way that I do in the world and so many other things like tying my shoes and knowing when it's time to go to the bathroom and <laughs> all of the things that the mind just does and your, uh, you know, uh, how it runs your nervous system and all the miraculous things that the brain and the mind does. But this is more in the um, ethereal sense, you know, the ethereal mind more so than like the actual brain, but that universal mind. And so uh, realizing that I needed to get to know my mind within those few moments, however long it was, it felt like 10 hours. It was probably 10 minutes that this took place in. But I really got to know my mind and introduced myself and welcomed it and thanked it and uh, merged with the mind where my soul could actually interface with the mind so it's not one or the other and so that the mind was not demonized and all of this, etc. So as I got to know mind, uh, which was also incredible because it was also N-O mind, no mind, there was no mind, but at the same time, these awarenesses were happening to me and for me and after that sort of subsided, I was naturally guided 
to experience the same thing with my heart and to get to know heart, to know my heart and uh, make peace with it and communicate with it and make amends to it for, <laughs> I made amends to my mind too for all the damage I've done to it by wrong thinking and all the chemical abuse that I've put my, my actual brain through and my mind through and, and all of the emotional uh, trauma that I've brought upon myself really mentally and also the pain that I've caused my own heart and the pain that others have caused my heart and also um, the pain that I've caused others' hearts. And so um, there was a real peace made with my heart and then I had the sense that I wanted to communicate to my heart that I was going to protect it, you know? And then I realized that my whole life I've been trying to protect my heart by concealing it and hiding it and that the real protection of the heart is to allow the heart to be free and allow it to be expressed and to know that I can trust myself enough to take care of my heart by allowing it space to be fully operational and to fully be seen. And part of my doing this recording, sitting in my room right now, uh, holding the recorder in front of my face, talking to what will be a future podcast audience, is part of that expression and not being afraid to share what I'm going through and sharing the healing of this experience and the experiences that I'm sure are to follow in different modalities and different practices to come uh, for the rest of my life. And so uh, apart from the process that I discussed in the interview earlier with Jeff, um, this was the big, the big moment, you know, and there's a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of crying, a lot of emoting during this period, but I really felt it was important to just welcome the mind, to welcome my heart and to fully integrate with them and to have them be part of that soul experience, to allow them to interface with my consciousness and um, to uh, have them be fully operational in my life. Uh, moving forward and in this moment right now. So, uh, you know, of course, there was much more to it. I, I'm sure at some point I'm, I'm going to do kind of a summary of the different uh, journeys, uh, ceremonies, and relay uh, in more of a summarized way what this experience has been like. But while it's still fresh in my awareness, I think it's important to do these little reports and just kind of reflect because, listen, man, I'm going to want to listen back to this after some time probably and and use this as a, as a means by which to fully integrate this process into my life because some of it goes away. I took some notes here and there. I have my little notebook here and there are moments at which I had, in which I had epiphanies and uh, I did stop to write them down kind of in the dark, hoping that I'd be able to read them the next day. Uh, so far, I'm doing pretty well reading my, my darkness handwriting. Uh, but this is part of the process for me too, is, is sharing this with you, the listener and, um, you know, hoping to inspire other people that might feel the call, as I have recently, to explore this part of humanity, this, um, you know, this indigenous shaman medicine, this jungle juice, man. It's, um, it's incredible stuff. And uh, with that, I think I'll sign off and get my, my Vedic meditation in. Uh, I'm mixing, you know, so many different continental traditions here on this trip between breath work and meditation and and the plant medicine and, you know, all of this, um, all of this, uh, this fully integrative experience with so many different modalities involved in, in processing this uh, medicine. So here I go. I've got a few minutes to sort of mentally and emotionally prepare myself and just summon up 
the bravery and courage needed to explore this part of my human experience and of reality. So until we meet again, I'm signing off. Well, 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 made it through the fourth and final night of the ayahuasca ceremonies. And last night was an interesting one. You know, the whole time I've been here, everyone's saying, man, just wait for Thursday night, wait for Thursday night. It's so incredible. It's so incredible. And so I don't want to build up expectations, but I was expecting something quite miraculous. And after the first three nights and all the breakthroughs that I had and just how profound each night was in its own unique way, as I've described uh, to some degree during these reports and these transmissions here, uh, last night, it was a longer ceremony. You know, it started at 7.30 p.m. and went till about 8 a.m. And we took a little bit different medicine last night. It was a version of uh, ayahuasca referred to as yahe. And as I understand it, the difference last night was this brew was uh, made from a different vine, which grows in Colombia. And it was done in the Colombian uh, shamanic tradition. And so it was much thicker and actually tasted like, oh, how would I describe it? Maybe like fermented sludge from the bottom of a porta potty that's been sitting out in the sun for 10 years. Uh, it was not a pleasant uh, flavor profile. But that said, I went and took my first cup and laid down and felt quite ill. I still didn't throw up. I'm four for four on no throwing up. Um, many people did. It's part of the, you know, the purging process, it's healthy and it's some of what the medicine is designed to do. Uh, I was thrilled that I didn't throw up. However, I was having some explosive um, purging happening in the other direction uh, for quite <laughs> quite a few hours, which was no party. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm willing to detox, I'm willing to cleanse, I'm willing to get whatever physically or energetically needs to get out. But the first cup, I did not have any uh, discernible psychoactive or um, you know, hallucinatory visions or anything like that. Um, I did have one brief vision or realization, and that was I was taken into a hallway and a door, and I opened the door, and there I was being born in this hospital room. And, you know, it's sort of blurry. It's not, like, vivid, but I got the sense that that's what was going on. And then the nurses took my little bloody baby Luke body and for a moment set it on my mom's chest and she kind of held me and was crying and then they they whisked me away uh, after a couple moments and took me in another room and threw me in an incubator and I got the sense that I was um, sort of abandoned or, or separated from my mom and that was that was really interesting I actually sent my mom a text today I haven't heard back from her she's not that big on her cell phone and I was you know, kind of incapacitated in terms of calling and having a conversation. But I'm really curious to hear from her if that is, in fact, what happened, because I really don't know. It would be interesting to find out if the stories um, lined up. But I had that, and that was a little bit of a healing, you know, whether or not that's exactly what happened. There was definitely something around my birth that uh, needed to be processed. But really, other than that, I kind of just laid there for hours and hours and listened to the music and uh, you know, I had the first cup. And then when I went up for the second cup, I was like, God, I hope something happens because I just felt pretty ill, but didn't really 
you know, have anything um, euphoric happening or anything like that. And I actually just wanted to do more internal work. I was ready for more revelatory uh, experiences, you know, and took the second dose of medicine. And again, didn't really feel anything other than just getting increasingly ill. And this is the experience that a lot of people report uh, when taking various plant medicines, including ayahuasca. It just wasn't my experience the first three nights. So I felt like, I don't know, hopefully not in a prideful sense, but I thought, fuck, I've been doing a lot of work for a lot of years. And maybe this experience is not negative for me, like it has been seemingly for so many other people, just in terms of the purging and people processing negative emotions and pain and trauma and crying and those things that you hear going on in the ceremony uh, while you're laying on your little mat. And so I kind of thought, cool, man, I'm just going to have four beautiful experiences. And, and last night it was, it was quite challenging. You know, I really, I really had to work with um, my level of surrender and uh, not finding fault or fighting the experience and just, you know, again, trusting that I was being given what I needed to be given and understanding that there's an intelligence in these, in these um, processes and that the medicine gets in you and it has um, your highest good in mind, in a sense, and that you're, it's following your intention and it's sharing that intention, which, you know, overall my intention here is just to heal and to to evolve more spiritually. And so I guess in retrospect, you know, it's now 11 p.m. the next night um, after having a busy day and resting and finally getting to like eat a lot of food. I got dinner tonight, which I haven't had yet, which was a real treat. Uh, you know, you don't eat before you go in ceremony. And this were every night at 5.30 with the exception of last night being 7.30. So, you know, here I am. I just got all my files uploaded, you know, for the podcast that I'll be producing that you're now listening to and made sure everything's in Dropbox and did all that kind of linear groundwork so I can get back in the process tomorrow. But as I reflect on it, um, you know, I don't see last night as a negative experience. It's just like, God, it was just a lot of work to get through it. And there was also a healing in the middle of it where all of the, you know, the different shaman and, and uh, you know, light workers that were assisting with the ceremony uh, put us all in a circle and did this really heavy-duty shamanic healing on us with all these tribal drums and music. And it was, I mean, it was like you were in the middle of the jungle. There was some serious uh, voodoo going on there in the most positive sense, you know, <laughs> good love voodoo. Uh, but, you know, just the smells of the some of the elixirs and things that they use to cleanse you are really overwhelming and not pleasurable to me at all. Other people that I talked to said they really like the smell of these different um, I don't even know what they call them. Um, porte, I think they call it. It's just like these sort of strange jungle juice sauces that they spray on you and whack you with these uh, Amazonian plants and all this stuff, which I, I believe is definitely very healing and it's a cool process to experience. But because I was so nauseous, the smell of these things all night long, because it was just, you know, nonstop, um, it was intense. So that's that's my report, you know, of the final night. And I'm still maintaining, of course, that this has been and will continue to be a very healing, um, very transformative process. And I have a feeling it's one of those things that's going to really unfold within the next couple of weeks as I get home and reintegrate back into city life and work and kind of, you know, get back into my householder's uh, spiritual path, which means I'll be operational in the world and being a, a real normal person and not living out in the jungle and doing the stuff I've been doing. Um, so it's kind of hard to tell you, but of course I'll be reporting back, but that's the report for today. And um, another thing that really kind of helped seal the deal for me was I got to do a Christian's breathwork class tonight, which was fantastic. We did this deep 
transformative breath for the whole thing took an hour, but it was 45 minutes of this breathing. And it was quite cathartic and emotional and really intense. And um, that put me back into the positive sensations of this whole experience and sort of activated the, the lighter side of the medicine for me. And also in a strange way, really tied in so many of the Kundalini yoga experiences I've had, because when you do a lot of the breath work in Kundalini yoga, you're really shaking up your energy. And um, some of the Kriyas that involve long uh, extended periods of breath work produce DMT in your body, which is one of the active ingredients in ayahuasca. And so there's a familiarity to the plant medicine and the lineage of Kundalini yoga, even though they obviously come from completely different cultures across different continents and, um, you know, different indigenous peoples of those continents and countries, um, of course, have come up with these different modalities. But in the end, the goal of them all is the same, and that's to merge with your higher self and change your energy and, and uplift your vibration and to evolve. And so today doing the breath work, I, I just had the realization, wow, I've really been preparing for this plant medicine experience with the Kundalini Yoga and, and all of the Vedic meditation, all the different things that I do, even going in float tanks and um, having that sensory deprivation experience, which is very much akin to being floored by ayahuasca and just laying there and having your consciousness sort of roam around these other dimensions and whatnot. So I've experienced a bit of the plant medicine before ever having done it in a sense. And even to a degree when I was younger doing LSD and mushrooms and things like that, um, tapping into those other realms of reality, uh, which are all around us all the time. And um, sometimes it takes something outside of yourself to give you keys to the portal of what's truly inside yourself, which is you know, that dimension of soul and spirit. So as I end the day today, uh, I will just say that I'm able to see how all of the different practices that I've used over the years, all the different modalities are now coming together in the most beautiful way. And I'm starting already to begin to integrate this experience into past experiences that I've had and um, contemplating how I can continue to build on what I've discovered here. So as I end this night, uh, I'll be getting up tomorrow and having a bit of a, a lounge day, perhaps go to the beach and take steam and you know, do a mud bath, do some yoga. And then um, our last breathwork session is tomorrow night. And then tomorrow night's the last night. And Sunday I hop on a plane at 11 a.m. and I'm flying back to L.A. and getting ready to move into a new house this week. So there's a lot going on and uh, it's just been an absolutely fantastic experience. And I'll definitely make sure to do a couple more reports as I you know, let this soak in. And I think for now, my friends, my ass is going to go to bed. And thank you for joining me so far on this magical, illustrious, enlightening journey. Well, 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 here we are on the last day of my time at Rhythmia. And uh, I had to do a report because I just had the most uh, surreal experience. You know, we had the day off today. The only, uh, I mean, there's some classes and things like that. And then there's a breathwork class coming up in a bit, but there were no uh, required classes and certainly no more plant ceremonies happening. So I thought, wow, I'd love to get out to the beach. And so I uh, was speaking to a friend of mine who's also a participant and he's from Costa Rica. And so he invited me and a few other people to go down to a really nice sort of secluded beach nearby. And uh, he has his car here, you know, because he drove. 
So I'm really excited. I get all my stuff ready. There's, uh, I guess, four of us packed in this little car, and um, we head out of the driveway. I send a text to a friend of mine, and I'm like, oh, I'm so excited. You know, I'm really feeling very grounded and um, just centered and connected and excited to go into uh, this little beach. And then later on, we were set to go into town and have some dinner. And I thought, cool, I'm going to see some Costa Rica, you know, having not seen much of it here, being um, dedicated to my time at Rhythmia on the property here on the campus. So we get in the car, we pass the gates, everyone's kind of excited and talking. And our driver, who will remain unnamed because he would perhaps be mortified uh, if I called him out on his his uh, error in driving. But anyway, we're going down the road and uh, he starts like leaning back and talking to the people kind of in the back seat. I'm riding shotgun, I've got my seatbelt on. And then he starts veering toward the side of the road. I'm like, dude, 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 yo. And by then it was too late and he went off the side of the road and the car tipped over on my side. Uh, on its on the side of the car, and then there we are, flipped upside down. The windows pop out, and um, you know I'm looking at a bloody foot and people screaming, and uh, I manage to unlatch my seatbelt, kind of fall to my side, and then pry the door open and get out and grab my my bag that was kind of under me and my cell phone had fallen, and thankfully I grabbed those and then just. Kind of set that aside and started helping the other people climb out. And, you know, people were pretty shaken up. I don't think anyone was critically injured. You know, there were some scrapes and cuts, and I think people got banged around a little bit. But it was so um, so interesting, and having that experience, this was about an hour ago, having uh, that experience, it was really interesting because it, once I climbed out of the car and, you know, realized that I was not terribly injured, at least that I'm aware of so far, and that everyone else, although they were crying and pretty shaken up, were okay too. I just, I felt instantly at peace, almost to the point where I kind of felt guilty that I wasn't more upset when some of the other people were. But it enabled me the opportunity to see that even though when I was 16 years old, I had a very similar accident driving uh, my girlfriend at the time's car in Colorado, literally just going down a gravel road, not very fast, and started hydroplaning across what was called, uh, it's called washboard. It's kind of something that happens to gravel roads. And your car will just kind of skid perpendicular to the road and you lose control no matter what you do with the steering wheel and which direction you attempt to turn the car. And we had gone off the road just like that and flipped over. And I was hanging upside down in that car at 16 years old. So I had kind of a a visceral traumatic experience. Um, I wasn't hurt the first time either, but no one likes to be thrown upside down off the side of the road, you know what I'm saying? So it was interesting to see that I didn't have any sort of trauma trigger and more than anything, aside from just feeling badly for the people that were afraid and had a little blood happening and all that, I was just kind of like, shit, I wanted to go to the beach. <laughs> I was kind of more bummed that that happened because I had to come back to the medical clinic and it rid me. I mean, they have, a, they have a full-on medical clinic, nurses, doctors on call, you know, all the time. So, um, you know, we were in very, very good hands, needless to say. So I wasn't worried about being stranded in the jungle with a bunch of hippies. I mean, this is a legitimate medical facility. So that was fine. Um, but it was just interesting that I wasn't really shaken up. I didn't, other than the fact that I missed a couple hours of beach time, uh, kind of like no big deal but just to be on the safe side i came back to my room where i sit now and decided to meditate and then i got a call from a friend who was going through a hard time and we talked through some stuff that she was going through and uh, i had a great talk and then i thought well i'm just gonna run out to the beach but before i do i'm going to give a little daily report and then i'm going to meditate just to make sure that i cleanse any 
trauma that I might not be aware of, you know, internal emotional trauma and really settle into that. I'm sitting on my bio mat here, which is just great for any kind of physical pain. And I'm going to run a session when I meditate on my circadia, which is really great for um, anxiety and depression and sleep and things like that. I travel with it and, uh, you know, I'm just going to do a little biohacking here and then do what I intended to do, get my ass down to the beach and go do some sun gazing and watch the sunset. But I wanted to give this report and just reiterate something that I talk about a lot. And that is so much of the discomfort and pain we experience is based on our mental reaction to it. And had my mind slipped into a negative space and been upset at the driver or, you know, dipped into fear for my own safety or fear for other people's safety, it would have been a much more traumatic experience and probably really, really ruined my day, if not my trip. I mean, here we are at the end of the trip, everyone's celebrating this hard, hard spiritual work that we've done. And, uh, you know, to get in a car crash was not um, on the itinerary. But I'm living proof that if one can really manage one's thoughts and attitude, that any experience can end up being a positive experience. So it's been a great day, despite, <laughs> despite a little accident, a little being upside down momentarily and having a kind of smashed and bloody foot. Uh, I'm going to meditate and get my ass to the beach and watch that beautiful sunset and then come back and... Uh, have my final night at Rhythmia. So stay tuned for my next report. And thanks as always for tuning in. It's now the seventh and final day of the trip to Costa Rica. I'm on the airplane, as you might be able to guess from the insane amount of background noise. But I got to say, uh, this has been quite an incredible trip. I'll check in again once I land, but I did want to report something that was interesting in regard to my last transmission. And that is that on the fourth night of ceremony, when I had that vision about uh, imagining my birth and having the medicine go back and heal that experience, and I had sent a text to my mom asking her if the way that I had been shown that my birth had happened was in fact reality. And last night she sent me a text that confirmed the exact sequence of events that I saw in that vision, uh, which were of course, walking through the door, seeing myself being born, uh, having my mom hold me for just a couple of moments and then being uh, ushered off into another room and kept in an incubator and away from human touch. And, um, she said, that's exactly what happened. The only difference in the story was that uh, she said I was held in a blanket on her chest for a couple minutes. Uh, and in my vision, I was just like bare. Uh, so minor variation in the story there. And then in my vision, there was no uh, introduction to my dad, which she had indicated. She said that they took me out and showed me to my dad, who I guess was in the hallway or outside in the waiting room. And then they took me in the incubator and she wasn't allowed to touch me for a couple of days uh, because there was a risk of infection due to the fact that they didn't know when her water had broken. So uh, very interesting um, healing going on with that. It's strange when you don't know the facts surrounding an incident in your life and um, in the process of an ayahuasca ceremony you're shown things that you didn't know that you knew. Not a big deal. And it was a very uh, short glimpse of a vision on that fourth and brutal night. But it sure is interesting to have someone not involved in this process reflect back to me a version of the story that corresponds with what I was given in ceremony. 
So uh, after waking up from a long flight or waking up from a long nap on the flight here, I think I'm capable of opening up my laptop finally and getting a little work done. And I will leave you with that little tidbit of reality until I check in again. What a long, strange trip it's been. So that concludes my final field report from the airplane, guys. And here I am sitting in my house in Laurel Canyon that I moved into right when I came back. I'd like to do a brief summary of the experience here. Of course, it's difficult to put everything that happened into words. So I think if you listen to part one and part two of this series, you'll probably get a real sense of what it was like then. But what happened afterward was quite interesting because normally it's recommended that you come home and have some time to integrate, you know, spend some time alone and with friends and family, try to minimize stress, perhaps get out in nature a bit, do some yoga, do some meditation and really process the deep healing that takes place during a plant medicine ceremony or series of ceremonies as it were. Now, in my case, I came back and I did that last report on the plane and I had every intention of arriving at my house after I drove back from LAX and be like, okay, guys, I made it home. And then waking up the next day and be like, okay, I'm back in LA. This is what it feels like. But truth be told, what happened was I came back and uh, and moved within a few days um, of this experience. So I think my integration process was uh, somewhat skipped or obscured by the fact that I experienced quite a lot of stress and just moving everything I own and my podcast studio from the cell tower infested apartment I was living in in Miracle Mile to my current lovely um, tree-lined home in Laurel Canyon where I'm recording from presently. But uh, moving for me is difficult. I'm, I don't know, maybe it has something to do with my astrological profile or something, but I do not like big changes like that. And especially after I've just gone through a complete psychic and spiritual upheaval. So while I say it was stressful, I mean, I was happy and everything went well, but you know, moving is a pain in the ass for some of us. I know some friends that do it easily. I'm not one of them. So I was very preoccupied with that. And when I move, it's all the things, you know what I mean? I've got to biohack the new crib. I've, I've, I'm very particular about decorating <laughs> paint colors. I change out every light switch typically and light fixtures and doorknobs. And even though the place I moved into was great and it was, you know, move-in ready, it wasn't move-in ready for me because... I have my own steez, you know what I mean? I want to come in here and really make it my own and feel at home and get a good vibe going. And it's also my new podcast studio where I'm sitting right now. So uh, by the time this episode comes out, you may or may not have seen um, some of my live recordings as I've live streamed from the new location. I've got a really great room here and it's just lovely. There's a backyard and I've set up the ice bath and I have a biohacking man cave meditation cottage thing that I have to come up with a good name for where I keep all of my devices and my sauna, the biocharger, the amp coil, the juve light, all the things I always talk about on the podcast. Those are all now in one place so my friends and family can come over and get healing and meditate with me. So, um, you know, it ended up being great, but it was quite a whirlwind when I got home. So what has this experience really uh, meant to me now? You know, to be honest, I've not really journaled a lot. I've not meditated on it. I've just kind of kept it pushing. I came back, moved, and just went right into recording mode. I just went to the Bulletproof Conference. I recorded 17 interviews there in three days. I mean, I'm on the move. But if I really have to break down the net effect of this experience, I think more than anything, it was a very 
really kind of a passive yin experience in terms of the spiritual transformation, meaning my relationship to the medicine was not like, okay, I'm going to heal myself. It was more as if I was just allowing the intelligence of the plant to do what it was supposed to do with my soul, my, my brain, my mind, psyche, my emotions, my past, my traumas. Uh, I just let it do its thing. And I think when I came back and got back into the householder's life, as we call it, uh, although, of course, I've been meditating and doing my other spiritual practices, a little kundalini yoga, some breath work, all the things, you know. Uh, but it's like nothing's changed in a sense because I'm just me, but I do uh, have the firsthand experience of entering into those other dimensions and having the veil lifted the veil that separates me currently sitting here on the microphone in a human body, um, having a human personality, a human ego, human sensations, needs, wants, desires, the part of me that's animal, um, not bad animal, just animal. You know, you have an animal body and a spiritual soul. And um, having had that experience, I sit here now and I know that there is much more going on than meets the eye. And so my faith in God has become much deeper. Uh, my faith in myself, the ability to trust myself, knowing that there is more to life than the physicality of it. You know, having the plant medicines give me access to those other dimensions as I did, as you heard in, in the field reports, at least um, to the best of my ability in the interviews, I relayed many of my experiences. And um, of course, in the, in the reports that I did after almost every one of the four ceremonies. And, um, you know, there were those moments where you kind of leave what you think is yourself and disappear into the void and have that communion with God and that sense of oneness and um, being in union with consciousness. And that's a beautiful place to be, yet at the same time, real life happens. And so I guess what's happened for me is I've come back and I'm like back in real life, but I still have myself tethered to the experience at Rhythmia and also, I just have such fond memories of everyone there. I mean, literally every single person I met there, whether they worked there or were fellow participants, were just so high vibe. I mean, when I was there, I think I joked like, dude, I don't want to go home. Let's all just make a commune here and just chill. Um, you know, not realistic, but the people that I was there with were just fantastic. So if any of you are hearing this now, I made some new friends there, especially the friends I was in the car accident with, which was such a trip. You can find pictures of that accident, by the way, on my on my Instagram if you're curious about it. Everyone, I, it wasn't. I don't know. I think I didn't take it as seriously as other people, you know, because I was just in the middle of this blissful week, and people were very concerned on Facebook and Instagram when I posted those pictures because we rolled this car. I mean, it wasn't just like we hit a curve and we flipped upside down, and there was blood, and you know, it was there was a bit of carnage. Everyone was okay, but um, you know, I really bonded with some people and just. The organization of the staff and the timing and the scheduling and just the beautiful grounds and the beautiful room. I think I'm I'm just so fortunate to have had my first experience be so comfortable. You know, from what I hear, a lot of my close friends have done a lot of work with plant medicines and they're like, yeah, dude, the experience you had, just so you know, is not how it usually goes. You, <laughs> you had a real cushy Westerner sort of um, experience there. And, and I don't know if I could have done it any other way the first time. I mean, I think now if I were to endeavor to 
take ayahuasca again um, in a different setting, which I could see happening. I, I really enjoyed the first three nights. Um, as you heard in the reports, night four, not so much. Uh, I was kind of a pisser, but, um, you know, the luck of the draw, I'd say three out of four really beautiful experiences is pretty good odds. So I'd be willing to gamble again, um, so to speak. But I would be much less uh, picky about, I think, set and setting in terms of just the luxuriousness and the comfort of it. I mean, you know, it wouldn't be that bad if I didn't have my own giant room and a king size bed and a kick ass air conditioner and, you know, great filtered water and organic food. I mean, I was really pampered in the Rhythmia experience, as is everyone that goes there. And from what I understand, that's not always the case. So I feel fortunate to have had my first time just being overwhelmingly positive experience and, uh, you know, leaving me with a taste for it. And I think when my intuition and my guidance, uh, my guides, my guardian angels, <laughs> my relationship with God, you know, when that indicates to me that it might be time to do some more healing and to go deeper, I would be open to having that experience. And frankly, I would just love to go back to Rhythmia. I mean, I could see myself just kind of not even doing the guesswork and just going back there and doing that again a time or two because just being away from home and away from people and away from stress and all that was just fantastic. I think my experience was also a little unique because I was doing, you know, I was creating content and creating media while I was there. I was sort of half journalist, half participant. And that was um, a little interesting. You know, I, I would have enjoyed it. I don't say enjoyed it more, but it would have been a different experience if I just, I didn't have my phone or any of my devices or my computer no social media and just like really dive in and, um, you know, enjoy the experience as just a regular participant. So I was kind of multitasking and that was interesting. But anyway, to recap and shut this thing down, because we're God knows how many hours we're into this two-part series, but uh, overall an absolutely positive experience. And I know that I've grown. I know that I've been healed. I've had experiences since I've been back that would indicate to me that something has shifted um, the ways that I get triggered are different. They're, uh, they've lessened in many ways. And um, I really just have a much more clear view of what I've experienced in my own life from literally the moment I was born, as you heard in the episode. You know, that's when it all started. And I can see these touch points throughout my life where I was harmed or I harmed myself and that those in many ways set me up for failure and that I've received so much grace and so much love and salvation, quite frankly, from my family, friends, loved ones, from God, from my spiritual practices, from my spiritual teachers, from all of the... Um, God, <laughs> whenever I get into gratitude and my heart just fills up and here I am like recording by myself sitting in a room, it's such a weird thing to be talking to you when there is no you right at this moment, but I know there will be. That makes sense, but um, I just feel so blessed. I just have the most incredible life <laughs> and it's had so much contrast. You know, I think that's what's made it <clears throat> made it so rich is I've just had so many different kinds of experiences from the darkest of dark to the lightest of light. And as I close this, I'd like to thank everyone at Rhythmia. I'd like to thank Josh Trent uh, for helping me make the decision to go there, fellow podcaster. Um, I think we're going to be doing each other's shows here shortly. He's got a show called Wellness Force. Shout out to Josh great guy we finally met in person recently and um, I'm just so grateful to you the listener for joining me on all these conversations with all of the fantastic people that I have the opportunity to sit down and share space with I still continue to just 
<laughs> I'm just continually in awe that this is one of the things that I get to do for a living. You know, it's just absolutely incredible. And so it's with a full heart that I end this episode. And thank you so much for joining me.